WAPG Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 264. Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 727 in the Sheraton Hotel in Springfield, Massachusetts. In this episode, tall passengers need not board. A couple of instances of overheating electronic devices, more news, your feedback, and a new Plain Tales episode in the box. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 264 is ready for pushback. Hello and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guys show. It's an aviation podcast where we talk about all aspects of aviation, but kind of focus mostly on airline flying and operational uh, aspects of that uh, area. And uh, I'm an airline pilot for a major U.S. legacy carrier based in Atlanta and Joining me from, well, he's normally across the pond, but he's over here on this side of the pond today in Hoboken, New Jersey, an Airbus pilot extraordinaire for a European carrier. We have Captain Nick Anderson. Hi there, Jeff. And uh, what a pleasure it is to be back uh, on the show with you and uh, Dana and hopefully uh, Dr. Sepp in a while. Yep, I'm sitting here in bright and sunny uh, New York. Uh, the weather looks absolutely gorgeous. The temperature, however, it's freezing. A lot of snow around. Um, quite a uh, difficult uh, into uh, Newark last night, but uh, we're safely here. And um, all I've got to do now is uh, put my fingers in my ears and hope for the best because I'm passengering home tonight on a Boeing. Uh, I I have a feeling it's going to be okay, Nick. It's going to be okay. <laughs> I, I think it's going to be okay, too, because knowing their serviceability record, they're uh, not going to turn a wheel, so we'll all have to climb off and go and find an Airbus. <laughs> okay. Well, with that, let's uh, announce our or introduce our next guest. We have another pilot for Acme Airlines. First Officer Dana Colton, live from Daytona Beach. Good morning, APG crew and APG listeners out there. Good to be with uh, Jeff, uh, if you, and, and of course, uh, Captain Nick. And uh, if you uh, in the chat room for me today, it's because I'm talking to you from my iPhone doing the podcast. I'll be in and out a little bit today if uh, you see me leave here a little bit. Um, but I'm still going to try to say as much as I possibly can. So I'm looking forward to being a part of the show today and, and having some fun from Daytona Beach, although it's very cold and I've got a cat right next to me, which I'm highly allergic to. Uh-oh. And uh, yeah, but I'm taking the medication, so I'm doing good. Um, but it's been uh, been a fun week down here in Daytona Beach, cold, rainy, and uh, well, now sunny. So tell, tell me, Dana, do you have to smoke that medication? Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I just wondered. <laughs> Wait a minute. It looks now, if you can see the video of Dana, it looks like he has been smoking something. 
<laughs> he, he doesn't talk to me. Hot damn. So, so tell us, uh, Dana, for those of uh, those listening that aren't familiar with uh, what happens in Daytona Beach this time of year, what what's going on down there? Why are you there? Well, there's this thing called a bike week, and that's when you have, uh, oh, I don't know, 250, 300,000 close, closest friends get together over one week. What we do is uh, cruise around, ride the bikes, go for, for uh, nice rides, go eat some food, go look at uh, all the, the vendors that set up in different areas, and uh, then look at some of the talent that is here. Um, I'm, I'm going to say no more than that. And then, of course, uh, partake in a little bit of a liquid attitude adjustment. L- listen to some really good uh, cover bands um, and hang out with friends. It's a great time. Excellent. So probably not too many uh, bikini-clad ladies uh, driving around outside there this uh, year. Well, yeah, not so far. But some of the girls that have been working, uh, they're brave in the elements. I'm pretty impressed. Really? So, wow. Yeah. And, uh, Okay, I've been pretty gonna, impressed. I'm not going to go any further than that. Uh, let's... I, I, I'm not either. I'm not going to either. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway. But, I, you know, I, I will tell you, it's been uh, an unbelievable opportunity this year because it's been so cold. It's keeping, uh, especially in the mornings, a lot of people away. So uh, mm-hmm. here in Daytona, they give you the opportunity to uh, the manufacturers come in with all their different motorcycles. And you can t- take every each and every one of them out for a ride that you want to. In the morning with the cold, nobody's out there. So I had free access this morning. I was on a a slingshot. I was on uh, about seven different Harleys. Um, And it was uh, really a good time. Adrenaline rush, like you wouldn't believe. As I was saying to, uh, I I sent, uh, I know you guys didn't see it. I only sent it to the, uh, I probably should put it on, uh, I probably should tweet it. Uh, yeah, you should take part slingshot. in this whole uh, APG Twitter thing that we got going on, Dana. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and I will do that. I'll, it's a <laughs> slingshot. And let me tell you what, it's like an F-18 on the ground. The thing is unbelievable. So, anyways, that, that's that been my fun so far. Eating great food, drinking some adult uh, libations with uh, in moderation. Because, of course, being on two wheels, you don't want to ever take that chance. And then uh, hanging out with some good friends. Excellent. And at some point soon, uh, we should be joined by Dr. Steph. So when she shows up on our uh, Hangout, we'll uh, introduce her. But in the meantime, let's talk about this crazy week, at least for me, uh, or at, here in the United States, uh, affecting many, many folks in the northeastern United States. And as um, Dana just mentioned, it's even its effect, the weather system effect, uh, it goes extends all the way down into Florida. Because normally this time of year in March, uh, it's much warmer in uh, Daytona Beach. But um, I, uh, my regularly scheduled trip this week was um, uh, scheduled to layover in uh, at Bradley International, actually Springfield, Massachusetts, where I am now. And then the next day, I was supposed to be in nice, warm, sunny Charleston, South Carolina. Um, but that didn't happen because this, uh, what, what do they call the storm? Stella, 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 uh, was like the uh, beer. Yeah. Came. Well, I, I always, yeah. Okay. Um, so that's why. and came <laughs> rolling through a big, uh, nor'easter kind of setup up here in North in the Northeast. And I thought, well, based on what I can tell, looks like I'll be able to get in the next morning, leave on that first flight and get out of here and on my way to Atlanta and then ultimately Charleston before the uh, snow really got bad. The thing that I didn't think about is the fact that uh, 
the airplane that we'd be taking out in the morning at six o'clock has to come in really late at night. In fact, that's what I flew last night, the uh, the late flight that arrives just before one o'clock in the morning. And that flight did arrive, but it did something that I learned. I didn't, uh, I've never heard the term before. Well, not in this context anyway, called dump and run. And uh, Mike Carroll's our uh, dispatcher extraordinaire uh, who has a great podcast, Flying and Life. You need to listen to his show and subscribe. Anyway, he said that, well, here's the deal. Uh, all the flights going into Bradley International are going to dump the passengers, and then they're going to run. They're going to take that airplane and ferry it somewhere like Detroit or Minneapolis or Atlanta to get it out of the way of this big storm coming in. And I thought, well, that's not good. That means that I'm not going to have an airplane tomorrow morning. You know, this is speaking of Monday. And uh, sure enough, got the notification from the Acme crew notification system that said that uh, the flight was canceled and that we were going to be spending two nights in Springfield. So I spent Monday night and Tuesday night here. And then uh, early yesterday morning, uh, deadheaded home on the 6 o'clock flight. And the Syracuse uh, turnaround that I had scheduled on my trip, that got canceled too because of the snowy weather up here in, uh, in New England and upstate New York. So I went home, took a nap, looked at the schedule, and I thought, hey, there's a trip in there that heads out late tonight and goes oh, to Bradley and then uh, back on Thursday. And it looks like I have enough of a legal break that I can actually do this trip. So I put in my request for that. And so here I am, got in late last night, got to the hotel a little after one o'clock in the morning, and uh, will be leaving in about three or four hours back to Atlanta and then back home tonight. So that's that's what I've been doing. I've been spending most of my week here in Springfield, Massachusetts, and uh, pretty much confined to the hotel because of the really, really blizzard, uh, nasty blizzard conditions outside on, on Tuesday. So there, that's been a lot of fun. And I know that this storm has affected a lot of people uh, in the New York area, the D.C. area, and Boston, and... Uh, Maine. Uh, our main man, Micah, got a lot of snow up there. He uh, put, put pictures on Twitter showing cars completely covered with snow, etc. So that is about all for me. Um, really haven't had a chance to do much. You've got to be fairly lightly, uh, personally, though, Jeff, uh, by the sounds of it. just uh, You didn't have to try and fight your way through it. You just sat in a nice warm uh, hotel and watched it drift by. Exactly. I uh, didn't really have to fly in any nasty weather at all. How about you, Nick? You said something about your your uh, trip over into Newark last night. And uh, was it, did you experience some kind of a weather-related problem? Uh, well, it was just a, bit, a little bit on the rough side. Um, I mean, we canceled uh, all our JFK flights out of London uh, on the day of the storm. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, that then we then had to do max effort the de- next day to try and move all these passengers uh, home. So we moved all our big uh, 340 600s onto the JFK uh, routing and the Newark uh, routes. So um, when I had my flight into JFK cancelled, I was just sat in London, and 24 hours later they said, okay, we'd now like you to take this 600 into Newark. Uh, and... Um, when we came into work, and it was reasonably late when we were doing our paperwork, somewhere in the region of uh, like two o'clock in the afternoon UK time, I was already looking at uh, the NOTAMs for Newark. 
and they were giving a breaking action of uh, three, which is uh, medium. Not in itself a problem. Uh, the new runway is uh, certainly uh, two two rights adequate to cope with. That's nine and a half thousand feet. So stopping distance wasn't going to be a problem. But the uh, the forecast winds were uh, out of the uh, um, northwest, uh, so they were going to be more than sixty degrees off uh, at uh, you know in the region of um, twenty five to thirty uh, with some stronger gusts now that breaking action is not always not just breaking action of course uh, when you actually land the airplane there's uh, uh, an element there of uh, trying to get the tires to adhere to the runway so you can cope with uh, the drift that a crosswind gives you and when the runway is slippery of course uh, crosswind can continue to slide you off the side of the runway so there is a restricted crosswind limit uh, when you get reduced braking action and for three uh, that gave us a crosswind limit of only 20 knots instead of uh, if it was a slightly better we could get 26 knots if it had been a braking action four which would have been fine uh, anything better than that of course is fine you get pretty pretty quickly up to aircraft limits of 37 knots then but um, uh, we were when we got airborne, we were saying, well, uh, as it stands, when we get to Newark, we won't be able to land. So um, that was quite an interesting discussion with uh, operations, decided what fuel to put on. We already had 30 minutes of holding, and uh, we then changed our diversion fuel from JFK, which I thought, well, if Newark's out, JFK is going to be a bit of a nightmare. Everyone will be trying to get in there, um, down to Washington, so that if I... If push came to shove, uh, we would nip on down to Washington and get in there. But uh, as it turned out, of course, uh, they did a good job clearing the runway. But uh, there was still this uh, concern of the the uh, wind. They were doing uh, something called a river visual. No, not river visual. Um, stadium. Uh, some kind of a visual of a two line. Stadium visual. Not the. Could have been the stadium, yeah. So, I mean, and there was a lot of traffic in uh, to Newark last night. I, I don't think I've ever seen that, that amount. There were like five aircraft all queued up doing this uh, visual approach, which was basically uh, down the approach, I think, of the two twos, and then you swing it left and turn right on a kind of a and land on two nine. Now, we couldn't do that. Uh, if push comes to shove, we need about 30 or 40 knots down straight down the strip and uh, good braking action. The, the book actually says uh, you should decline an approach whenever possible. Whenever the main runway is within your crosswind limits, you would should decline a landing up two nine because it's just too short um, to make safe landing, and we always want one of those. So uh, we asked for two two right. They wouldn't give us that. Gave us two two left, which is okay. That's uh, eight thousand two hundred off feet. And uh, worst case, our braking act with the braking action, we were going to use seven thousand seven hundred at a couple of hundred feet in in, you know, in hand. But uh, it was mainly the wind, Jeff. Uh, Three thousand feet when we uh, picked up the ILS over Teterboro. I think we had 57 knots across, and it was all, you know, 90 degrees across the, the runway orientation. So that was just made it, and it was very rough. It was just bouncing the airplane around. Um, so it just made it an interesting approach, lots of drift, uh, uh, lovely visual. It was a lovely clear night, and then trying to keep an eye on the guys because we had guys ahead of us. 
on the approach that were turning off and then swinging around and cutting across our nose as they were landing on 2-9. And, you know, they, they always look quite close. <laughs> sure, everything's fine. They're, they're a mile or two away, so it's no, not a problem. But, you know, the, the, you're, always, you're working hard trying to keep your own uh, line-up and then trying to, to look over and make sure these guys who are running their approaches aren't going to impinge on, uh, on you. So it just made it all a bit uh, interesting. The crosswind was still uh, quite good. The speed was quite variable. I couldn't add any extra speed, really, uh, to give myself a bit of a gas margin because uh, the stopping distance was going to be a problem. So, uh, you know, all these things running through your head. It was, uh, And then when we put it on the runway, it was, it was fine. The braking action was okay, but the runway had lots of ridges of uh, frozen, I guess, slush, frozen snow that uh, made it pretty bumpy. Uh, and uh, oh, it was all in all, it was an interesting evening. It's uh, an evening where I think you feel you earned your money. Yeah, coming in here last night, um, there was no active snow. Well, it had some light snow, but it was pretty much visual conditions. But winds were very, very strong. I mean, I'm just a little bit further up the road from where you are. And uh, we were on final runway 24. Uh, probably about 20 degrees of wind drift angle all the way down. It took me forever to finally get onto course. You know, I go, okay, now I think I'm tracking the course. And again, 20 degrees, that's a lot. Yeah, it was, uh, or maybe not quite that much. It just seemed like 20 degrees. And uh, we finally, I I can believe it. Finally got down and then uh, the wind dropped off to hardly anything once we land. But uh, anyway, so I hope you're enjoying those chips, Nick. <laughs> I can't. I can't even touch them. <laughs> I'm, I'm just looking at the guy. I'd love to eat one of those. I'm eating a banana silently. Yeah. Yeah. So at least Dana is eating a banana, which doesn't make a lot of noise. <laughs> no, no. But I have to look at that. That's that's the, the bad bit. Yeah. Well, just avert your eyes. You don't want to see that. Uh, <laughs> you know? Can I? Can I comment, uh, Nick? I I'm actually kind of surprised to hear that you guys can use 2.9 in Newark. I know it has to be right conditions with X amount of wind, but I, I'm just kind of shocked that that big of an airplane can go on to run my 2.9. I was at uh, 5,900 feet, 6,000 maybe? I mean, uh, it's six, six and a half uh, is the six, uh, yeah. landing distance. I was chatting to uh, one of the Boeing pilots uh, in the pub last night, actually, uh, a chap I knew a long time ago, and uh, he's taken a 7.4 into 2.9 there at Newark. Uh, so I went, you wow. took a 7.4 into 2.9, <laughs> a classic. But, uh, yeah, I mean, with 40, I think 45 knots straight down the runway, he said, yeah, it stopped uh, it stopped very well. Yeah, I, I think that you but, know, usually uh, the, the only time they're using that runway is when the winds are very, very strong. And uh, uh, so I can see uh, landing... Sure. Any size airplane, the, the airplane thinks that it's a 10,000-foot runway with that much wind. But uh, one of the worst, la- actually the worst landing I've ever sat through in the cockpit was at uh, Newark on runway 29. At that point, we didn't have the stadium visual. We just had a runway 22 left circle to land on 29. And the captain was brand new on the 727. And I forgot what airplane he had flown before, but we were coming in doing the circling maneuver and uh, he comes down and he pulls the power off at 50 feet. Uh, You never, (laughs) ever 
pull the power off, even in, even if you have a tailwind on the 727, you never pull back all three throttles at 50 feet above the ground. I mean, you wait until the wheels are pretty much either on the runway or very close before you even think about taking the power back. And I thought, by the time I realized that he had pulled the power off, it was too late. And I thought, okay, here this is going to be interesting. And I think he realized it too. As soon as he pulled the power off, he goes, uh-oh. And... We came, and then of course you throw in a lot of headwind, and that just makes it worse. We all know because it takes ages. <laughs> yeah, so we slammed that thing down, and I thought you know we were going to collapse the gear. It was so hard. And, oh my god! Um, so we, uh, you know, we immediately got all the dings from the flight attendants telling us that all the <laughs> oxygen masks had fallen down in the back. We had the, uh, the what we what do we call that? The orange jungle or something like that, and. Uh, so yeah, it was a it was a big lesson learned for uh, for Captain I can't remember his name Captain No, no Whiskey or something like that. Anyway, good guy. It's just that uh, I felt bad for for him making that really poor decision on uh, power reduction at that point. But I <laughs> well, I must admit when I I banged one in one day, I came out of the flight deck and there in the front galley were three of our cabin crew. And they're all standing there and looking down at their ankles. Oh, how can I put this politely? They'd lowered their underpants. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Around their ankles. <laughs> they're all going, that was a hard one. <laughs> yep. Yes, I've heard that story yep. before myself. Uh, hey, right. Jeff. Yes. Look, look, look at your picture. Oh, look at that. Is he there? Hey, Jeff. Yeah, he's standing right next to me. He just arrived. Hey man, hey! Thanks for that patch. Uh, this is the gentleman, um, Gary Donato, who, uh, or should I use an alias? Oh, too late. <laughs> Junior. <laughs> <laughs> who? Uh, can, can you hear him? Yeah. Okay, you can hear him. Okay, good. Sorry. Yeah. Continue. Um, so anyway, uh, so I was flying with Dana, and Dana shows shows me this patch. You know, the uh, I'm sure that uh, those of you following us on Twitter, saw me uh, put up a, an image of the, uh, in fact, I have it over in my suitcase over there. I haven't had a chance to put it on anything yet, but uh, Gary had these really awesome patches made up uh, with a mad dog on it and uh, the 10,000 hour patch. Now, you know what's funny about that, Gary, is I, I tweeted that and people thought that that was my total amount of time. And I said, no, that's just on the 88. Uh, that's about yeah, half the amount of time it. that I have. <laughs> that's one piece. Yeah, I had all these congratulations on 10,000 hours. And I go, yeah, well, that's just the mad dog. But anyway, 20 years th ago. <laughs> yeah. Thanks a lot, Gary, for that. Uh, hey, no problem. Awesome. So uh, so what's what's going on, Gary? You got a bike down there as well? In fact, uh, I had to work this week. Uh, I have to support uh, Dana's habits, so uh, someone <laughs> has to has to work. But he, he trailered it down for me, so uh, now I'm picking it up. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, he told me he had a couple bikes. I didn't realize that one of them was yours. Yeah. Okay, so I charge uh, extra money for that. <laughs> so I didn't even give me a courtesy of a discount either. So this is the kind of stuff I got to put up with, folks. These these two guys, uh, I, I used to fly with Gary quite a bit when he was a co-pilot, and uh, now he is Captain Donato on the uh, on the Mad Dog in Atlanta. So uh, anyway, both of you great great guys to fly with. They keep me out of trouble, and Lord knows I need all the help I can get. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> so what's happening, Gary? No, just we drove in. Uh, I worked yesterday, got off, so we made it halfway to Valdosta. Uh, got a couple hours sleep and got up again, and now uh, just just rolled in. Just rolled in now, about ten minutes ago. 
Awesome. Well, I hope you have a great so, time down there. It needs to be a little bit warmer, but now it's not, it doesn't look that bad. Sun's out, so you can't ask for more than that. All right. Is it supposed to warm up? Yeah, about 10 degrees a day. So by the end of the – it'll be in the 70s by uh, the weekend. Excellent. Excellent. Well, you guys behave oh, yourselves. Nice. We'll try. <laughs> we won't. Don't worry. I know. <laughs> Take care, guys. Okay. Good to see Gary. Um, really uh, – Yeah, it's great to see Always him. enjoyed flying with him. So much more than Dana. Um Anyway, no, I'm oh, 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 that hurts. Ooh, ow. <laughs> I need to play some kind of a sound that effect. That really hurts. You, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell, I'm going to put mute here for a second. <laughs> what? I, I just told Gary what you said. <laughs> he uh, laughed. Uh, okay, well, it sounds like you're going to have a great time down there, uh, Dana. Um, yeah, well, after I'm done with the show, I'll, I'll continue to have a good time. But I figured I'd hang out for a little bit for a while. Okay, excellent. So, again, anybody that's listening to the show and uh, or uh, is in the chat room, I am mobile on my phone today. So if you don't see me responding, that's why. Oh, I did want to mention also there's a new podcast. Like you, like you need another podcast to listen to, aviation-related. But this one looks like it's going to be another good one from Flight... 20 flight radar 24 the flight 20 flight radar 24 aviation podcast av talk and uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes and they have already begun their podcasting journey by putting out episode number one the flight radar 24 aviation podcast introducing it okay and let's see we have uh ian uh Pachenik. And Jason Rabinowitz, and uh, I'm sure that many of you recognize those two names. Uh, they are big Av geeks and uh, very, very big in social media. And uh, you should check out their first episode again. That's the uh, Av Talk podcast from Flight Radar 24. Many of you use that website to uh, track slash stalk people, and. Uh, I think you'd get a kick out of listening to them talk about uh, the Maho. How do you pronounce that? I always said Maho, but I don't think that's the way you pronounce that over there at uh, St. Martin. The Maho Beach. Because I think no, I, I'm not familiar, Jeff. It's I not, think they pronounced it my territory differently when they were talking about it. Anyway, they talk about the beach cam returning over there, and they talk about all kinds of great things uh, regarding. Uh, flight radar 24, etc. So check it out. I'll put a link to that in the uh, show notes. And then uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is to remind everybody once again that we are going to have a big meetup in Pittsburgh on May 12th, 13, 14, the Wings Over Pittsburgh Air Show. Uh, Captain Rick Bell is kind of in charge of that whole thing, and uh, we're going to put a link to that in the show notes as well for you to check it out. Many of you listening are already making plans to join us there, and basically it's just going to be a weekend of watching airplanes, talking airplanes, and uh, just being together and perhaps drinking a beer or two or something like that. Um, and, uh, just one or two, yeah. Yeah, and then we plan to do kind of a, a, a Farnborough-style uh, get-up and recording, and uh, details uh, regarding that uh, are to come here uh, soon because this uh, date is rapidly approaching. So, again, just wanted to mention that, and... Anything else, Nick, before we move on to the coffee fund? Nothing that springs to mind, Jeff. I think you're all sorted. All right. Let's do it then. 
Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee, I love tea. I love the Java Java and it loves me. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. All right, the Java Jive, sung by the Ink Spots, recorded in 1940, public domain. They are going to serenade me while I talk about the Coffee Fund. And the Coffee Fund is your way to support the show uh, in a financial way for those of you who have resources to do so. And again, please, if you're saving your money to become a pilot, get flying lessons, and pay for your education, pay for your food, drink, shelter, and all the other important things in life, then please don't send us any money. But... If you are, uh, if you have some extra change in your pocket, let's say, and you want to contribute to the show and help motivate us to continue on with this endeavor, please consider joining the Coffee Fund Cadre. Since the last episode, we have Michael Bambrick, who used the Coffee Fund Classic method, which is via PayPal. And we have a new Patreon patron, Eric Wolf. Thank you, Eric, for uh, signing up to become a patron of the show. Again, that's Eric Wolf at Patreon. And that's a way that you can become a uh, per episode donor. donor. And uh, you basically pledge a certain amount. And if you pledge at least $1 per show, and that would be an average of 4 to $5 a month, uh, you will be eligible to receive the uh, perk of the APG Crew Log, a periodic audio journal that we uh, put out there for those of you who are part of the uh, Coffee Fund cadre. And uh, so, let's see, I'm going to go ahead and talk about our top-level donors. We have basically the, the top, top rung which are our senior executive producers. They are Lucas Diamond and Asa Armin. Uh, we also have the next level uh, $10 per episode and up assistant senior executive producers. And in that rank, we have Eduardo Suarez, Stephen Ward, Neville Bounds, Michael Benson, Robert Wolf, uh, and that's a, a select group there. And then the next group down, $5 per episode and up, we have our executive producers. Eric Graves, John Feldman, Robert Fairburn, Dr. Bo Abrahamson, Christopher Klimek, Justin Breeze, Trevor Moody, Joe Driver, David Collier, Bill Bates, Ross Gridley, Steve Noss, George Nolly. I'm going to go ahead and play this again so we have something going in the background here. Uh, let's see, we left off with... Uh, George Nolly, uh, Ken Hayes, Randall Shepard, David Moulinoux, Richard Miller, Larry Gregory, Zebulon Dawson, Jonathan Turfbor, Mike Clark, Liz Piper, Chris and Tanya Weitzel, just down the road in uh, East Hartford, Justin Williams, Andrew Espig, Stephen Wisniewski, Adrian Meacham, and Jim G. So to all of you in the top three levels of the Coffee Fund Cadre, we salute you. Thank you very much for your support. And thank you, every one of you, who have contributed anything over the years. We do, again, appreciate that as well. So, again, take care and think about uh, becoming part of the Coffee Fund Cadre by heading over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. A slice of onion.
Headphone batteries explode on flight to Australia. The headline in this publication, which happens to be yahoo.com, looks like um, a woman whose headphones caught on fire on a plane suffered burns to her face and hands, Australian officials said Wednesday as they warned about the dangers of battery-operated devices in flight. The passenger was listening to her music on her own battery-operated headphones, as she dozed about two hours into the trip from Beijing to Melbourne on February 19th. So that was last month when there was a loud explosion. As I went to turn around, I felt burning on my face, she told the Australian Transport Safety Bureau, which investigated the incident. I just grabbed my face, which caused the headphones to go around my neck. I continued to feel burning, so I grabbed them off and threw them on the floor. They were sparking and had small amounts of fire. Flight attendants rushed to help and poured a bucket of water on the headphones, but the battery and its cover had both melted and stuck to the floor. Uh, and there's a picture here showing the woman, uh, who is not named, with a blackened face and neck and blisters on her hands. Fellow passengers had to endure the smell of melted plastic, burnt electronics, and singed hair for the remainder of the flight. Aw, too bad <laughs> fellow passengers. Uh, People were coughing and choking the entire way home. Transport Safety Bureau, which uh, did not identify the airline or brand of headphones involved in the incident, said the lithium-ion batteries in the device likely caught fire. So another example of uh, spontaneous combustion of a... You don't know. Excuse me? You don't know. I think Dana's suddenly uh, popped back into life. Yeah, no, my wife was uh, talking to the cat in the background. Sorry about that. I, I was about to chime in and say, uh, you know, about the uh, these lithium ion, you know, get these very small, very limited instances here and there, but it's it doesn't seem to be other than what was going on with Samsung. Right. Yeah, that's just, uh, I'm not, you know, do you think that we're going to get to the point where they just say, you know what, if, it, if your device has a lithium-ion battery in it, we're just going to ask you not to... No, I, don't, I don't think they can, Jeff. There are just too many devices that we'll use yeah. all day, every day for that to happen. Yeah. But I certainly think the technology uh, is being improved, and uh, I think eventually lithium-ion in their current state, when they're vulnerable to these uh, thermal runaways will be modified out of existence. Uh, and I, I don't think it'll, it's going to take too long. I think the manufacturers are recognizing the problem. And after Samsung's debacle with their phone, uh, they realize the financial penalties of using uh, poorly regulated batteries. So I, I, I'm hoping that, that that will happen. Interestingly enough, I saw uh, on I saw on uh, Nova, there's a, a new battery that's been developed uh, that but it's got a polymer and it. it's a special battery now and uh, it can you can quite literally take a hammer and a screwdriver and i mean pound through will not uh, it will not explode it will not catch fire 
it's basically a stabilizing agent that has been introduced to it that can batteries. So, you know, that's the problem with, with lithium is that they, if they, they puncture or if they, they, um, you know, break or anything, then, you know, you can end up with thermal run, runaway. This new uh, technology is going to allow it to not have that issue. Well, that's good. Yeah. Uh, the, the biggest problem for me though, is, uh, the, um, unregulated, uh, knockoff batteries that are being produced very cheaply and flooded the market. Um, we're going to take a long time for those sort of um, Chinese knockoff or Far East knockoff batteries to uh, you know, be weeded out because they're the ones that are, are the, the real problem because they, a lithium battery contains an awful lot of energy stored. And once that energy gets released in a very short time, it's, it's nigh on explosive in its uh, ferocity. So when you get these things being created uh, that don't have any, at all then that it really is a problem yes it yeah. is. now it's not That's just limited true. to lithium ion uh we had an incident that occurred uh just a couple of days ago an american airlines boeing 737 800 uh was flying from miami to chicago and they were at flight level 370 60 nautical miles north northwest of jacksonville when a flight attendant was serving a can of soda to a passenger, but accidentally spilled the contents over the passenger and the in-flight entertainment system, which became soaked and began to emit smoke. The flight crew decided to divert to Jacksonville for a safe landing about 25 minutes later. And uh, so, you know, there was another article I was reading regarding this incident, and they didn't mention anything about the IFE <laughs> system. It just said some kind of an electronic device in the cabin... Uh, had some soda spilled on it, so they diverted to Jacksonville. And I'm thinking, huh? That sounds kind of kind of extreme to me. But uh, now in this Aviation Herald account, which is uh, much more accurate usually, uh, they specify that it was part of the IFE uh, system that uh, was smoking. So I think that was a good decision by the crew. Anytime you have anything in the airplane smoking like that, Unless you can, you know, isolate it immediately and take care of it, uh, you definitely want to get the airplane on the ground quickly. So, um, what do you think about this particular incident? Yeah, I mean, I, I've had bits uh, of kit on the flight deck that have been affected by uh, a spill, uh, and uh, luckily none of it started smoking, but it certainly malfunctioned uh, and had potential. Uh, and it's interesting that a lot of uh, equipment, um, when you actually reach and turn the off knob, even though it's a knob that has a click at the end of it. And you think back to your days when you took your first transistor radio apart, those volume controls were actual switches. Nowadays, they're not. They're just software um, adjusters. And uh, the, the, certainly in the equipment on uh, some of the Airbuses, uh, if, you, if the, you've turned it off, uh, no, you haven't. <laughs> you haven't actually isolated electricity to it because the damn thing sprang back to life after a while <laughs> and then began writing to itself. So on the screen, it was writing uh, letters and numbers. It was kind of spooky. But Hopefully it wasn't anything, um, anything like uh, coherent, like uh, like the machine, <laughs> you know, I'm communicating. I'm coming to get you. <laughs> <laughs> Your airplane is going to crash. <laughs> exactly. But uh, the piece of kit actually um, was uh, uh, the number three in a series of, um, of input uh, computers. Uh, and we could have taken over the function of that particular one on one of the other ones. 
Um, but because we couldn't actually turn it off, the, the systems one and two wouldn't take over the, the role because it says, well, you, I'm not going to, you've got to turn the other one off first and then I can take it over. And we had physically turned it off, but like I say, the, the software uh, was saying, oh, no, I'm actually I'm still alive. I'm, <laughs> I'm not dead yet. <laughs> you can't turn me off. <laughs> no, exactly. So it became quite frustrating. We oh, we basically nice. lost the function of uh, you know a portion of of uh, that uh, system. So that was just yeah. When it happens in the cabin, uh, I mean we can isolate all the commercial frequency switch uh, and take the power off it, and hopefully that would be enough mm-hmm. to prevent uh, an, a, a a diversion. But if it's already um, making a a bit of a there's a risk of it igniting fully then uh, i think diversion is a very safe thing to do yeah yeah well you know it, it it's very much like being at home i mean when, when you think about uh, you know all the all the electrical appliances that, that are plugged in at a house even though people think in their mind that they're actually off um and until you actually unplug it from the wall and remove all electricity from it uh even if you have a circuit breaker in there uh, there's always a possibility for for a fire. So, um, in, in, until all electricity is removed, you, you you always have that risk. That is true. I remember, it was a couple of years ago that uh, I, I think it was a United Triple uh, Seven somewhere going from Chicago to Europe uh, had to divert because somebody um, spilled a can of Coke on the uh, center instrument console of the uh, of the jet. And I'm not sure if they were experiencing any troubles at that point, but they thought, hmm, Coca-Cola, you know, the stuff that we use to remove battery acid from, <laughs> you know, automobile engines and that kind of thing, perhaps. Yeah, it, we, it settles your stomach, too. Yeah, it does all kinds of kind of crazy things. Anyway, um, yeah, they decided to uh, divert and get that all cleaned up. Probably the best thing to do before heading out over the Atlantic in the middle of the night. But, uh, well, I don't think any of us can face one of those uh, issues without remembering the uh, MD-11, the Swiss Air. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Swiss uh, Air, yes. It uh, had their entertainment system wiring in the roof of the cockpit uh, short, and uh, it was so severe it managed to ignite the uh, insulation uh, that was between the skin of the aircraft and the soft furnishings or the you know the plastic ceiling uh, and uh, an inferno, a terrible fire. Right, and before the guys could uh, get it on the ground, uh, flight deck had become uh, um, somewhere where uh, you know it was just impossible to even be in there, let alone uh, fly the airplane. So, well, you know, uh, the, the unfortunate thing, tragedy. yeah, the unfortunate thing that we learned about that one—I mean, it was terrible—the uh, the the in-flight fire there. But they uh, were trying to you know dump fuel and lighten the load of the airplane before they landed. If they had. I think that if they had directly headed toward um, a runway, uh, it's possible they could have gotten the thing on the ground and survived. But they, um, you know, we as I said, we learned a lot in that instance about the uh, b- the imperativeness of getting is that a word? Um, getting the airplane uh, quickly on the ground it is now, Jeff. Yeah, I, we examined that quite quite um, uh, intensively uh, in our uh, flight safety. Um, annual, you know, um, and uh, it was a marginal, uh, according to the figures that we uh, looked at. If they if they had gone straight in, 
it's possible they might have made it, but the likelihood is they would have just crashed a bit closer or a lot closer to Halifax than they actually did. But certainly, I think uh, stopping the dump was probably not a good idea. You know, that was part of their procedure, and um, procedures were kind of tweaked and rewritten a little bit after that instance where maybe we shouldn't worry so much about the weight of the airplane when we have something as serious as a fire on board. Um, yeah. But uh, as you said, they may not have made it anyway, but I think they would have had a much better chance. Oh, yeah, had for they, sure. Uh, had they done so. Um, anyway, uh, let's move on to our third and last story in the news folder for this episode. And that is, let me play a little bit of uh, uh, audio from this video uh, from the New Zealand Herald.co.nz. So obviously we're a little bit of a scuffle here. It shows uh, some video on board a, an airliner and uh, police are uh, trying to get this uh, man off the airplane. And what is his... His, uh, his, his crime, his crime is that uh, he's just too darn tall. Yes, you heard me correctly. Uh, apparently, the uh, gentleman here is a volleyball player, and uh, he's 20 years old. His name is Alexander Kimarov. Um, and uh, apparently, flight attendants decided this guy's like over seven feet tall. Very, very tall. In fact, when he was sitting down in his seat, it looked like he was standing up compared to the uh, security officers that came on board to uh, escort him off the airplane. And they were wondering, well, what exactly did he say or do that uh, you know, got him tossed from the airplane? Well, nothing. Uh, flight attendants decided that because he was so tall and his legs so long, that his very long legs were blocking mm-hmm. the aisle, and then they thought that that was uh, unsafe. So they insisted that they remove this uh, 20-year-old uh, athlete from the airplane. And uh, I don't know. This, uh, I guess volleyball is a very, very big thing in uh, Russia. Um, and this guy is kind of one of the stars of one of the teams. And um, apparently the team was heading somewhere. Uh, but uh, they, uh, they decided, nope, the guy is just too big to fly. And I'm thinking of all these times that we've had several hundred pound passengers on board the jet and if we tried to do something like that in my airline we would be sued into oblivion for you know the equal whatever the rights act is for you know disabled and and uh, differently sized people i don't know what the thing is called but uh you know, you you wouldn't dare think of throwing somebody off the airplane like this. But this is Russia; they do things a little bit differently over there. I, I'm not sure what airline it was. I'm trying to find that information here in the. Um, those are my those are my people. That's, I'm 100 Russia. I love my Russian people. Well, there you go. There's the problem right there. We've there's isolated. The problem. Okay. They, they I, I am the I am the problem. They should have given him your seat, Dana. He, he probably would have fitted into the first officer's seat. I don't know about that. I'm wide, not tall. <laughs> okay, so uh, Nick, you were saying? Uh, I was saying uh, the passengers were asking him to behave like a man and vacate your seat. <laughs> so I'm not quite sure why vacating your seat makes you behave like a man, but uh, 
There you go. Um, I, I suspect uh, that the cabin crew had a point. If the only way he could fit into his seat was to put his legs out into the aisle, then um, how are they going to do a service? How are they going to uh, get up? And if they need to evacuate, uh, how are people going to get past him if he uh, is incapacitated? So, I, 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 But on the other hand, perhaps they should have an area uh, like uh, by an emergency exit where they could have put him uh, where his legs were stretched out without any difficulty. I don't know. There's always a way around these things if you can look for a solution, surely. Yeah. Uh, you know, we don't. We weren't there. Of course, there may have been some kind of a, a back, an exchange between this gentleman and the flight attendants, and they thought, oh, really? You're going to be a, you're going to give me lip? Okay, then we're gonna, we're gonna take you off the airplane, no matter what you do. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Uh, I, uh, I I love the uh, some of these uh, statements in this uh, article about um, uh, the the writer of this article. How how bad could it be? Uh, obese people can fly after all. Babies are allowed on board. Plenty of people have flown with illnesses like stomach bugs, and there's no rule stopping people getting onto a plane if they haven't had a shower for a better part of the week. Uh, so you know, obviously uh, listing so many things that seem to be okay but again i i guess i i agree with you nick it could be that uh his long legs in the aisle were definitely uh a safety hazard so but um, it seems to me that if this had been handled maybe a little bit better both from the athlete and the flight attendants they could have come up with some kind of a uh, solution and uh, he could have continued to fly but anyway just thought that was interesting um, news of the bizarre. Really, no big uh, aircraft accidents incidents to talk about uh, since the last episode, and uh, really no, and really no updates. Uh, I think you have a message there. <laughs> Somebody does um, from the uh, uh, from the last episode. So, based on that, I think the best thing to do would be to continue on with. The best part of the show, which of course is your feedback. Captain, incoming message. Let's start this week's feedback with not so big Ron, he calls himself now. That's good news, Ron. Uh, Pakistani International Airlines, or Pakistan International Airlines, PIA, is under investigation over reports that a passenger flight flew from Karachi to Medina. Saudi Arabia, with a number of passengers standing in the aisle for the duration of the four-hour journey. The Boeing 777 has a capacity of 409 passengers, but 416 were reportedly on board the flight to Medina on January 20th. Extra passengers could be put at risk in the event of an emergency, as they would not have access to oxygen masks and could block aisles as people attempt to exit the aircraft. Uh, this a couple tweets uh, from let's see one from Ashish Sharma. She said uh, official PIA had seven passengers standing during flight to Saudi Arabia. Probe on, and then from watching Pakistan, uh, Pakistan International Airlines never ceases to amaze. Uh, the latest blunder. PIA flight, I think he meant to say ceases, not ceases. <laughs> I was going to say, Maybe I thought that you just mispronounced that, but now I realize you read it perfectly. <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, the latest blunder, PIA flight 
7.43 to Medina boarded seven excess passengers who stood all the way. According to the uh, news outlet, the excess passengers boarded the plane with handwritten boarding passes, but their names were not on the official list given to the aircraft crew. Uh, blame is being passed between pilot, senior cabin crew, and ground traffic staff. Uh, Hina Tura, the senior air hostess, said that when she told the captain there was chaos on board due to the extra passengers, he told her to settle them as the plane was already taxiing. However, the captain maintains that the air hostess should not have closed the door to the aircraft if there were extra passengers on board. The ground crew has also been criticized for giving the unofficial boarding passes to the additional passengers. So basically, it looks like there were several instances here that... Uh, this all could have been stopped and taken care of, like uh, the captain could have uh, returned to the gate and they could have sorted all this out. But instead, he decided, nope, door's already closed, we're taxiing, we're heading out, we're going, no matter what. <laughs> Probably not a great idea. Yeah. So uh, that was a, that's a major, that's a major no-no. You don't want, everybody has to have a seat so they can have a seat belt and an oxygen mask, etc. That's just a... Uh, Major it sounds like not the first time the PIA have actually done this because they've been previously accused of carrying two additional passengers in the toilet of a oh. plane on off from Lahore to Karachi. So at least they had a seat of sorts. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> wow. So uh, thanks, Big Ron, for that. I think uh, he also sent us another piece of feedback that we're going to talk about later in the show. But... Um, We'll move on to Olivier. Uh, he says, "Hi, APG crew. Here are some funny. Here are some funny news from Switzerland." And uh, so, let's see. From the Aviation Herald, a Singapore Air Airbus A380-800 was performing flight 345 from Zurich to Singapore, and they were accelerating to takeoff from Zurich's runway 16 when Tower instructed the aircraft to stop takeoff. I say again, stop takeoff. A fox is crossing the runway. The, the uh, aircraft rejected takeoff at 49 knots, which is basically just starting to roll, uh, vacating the runway at taxiway Echo 5, about 1,720 meters down the runway, which is 5,600 feet, returned to the holding point, for runway 16 and departed runway 16 about 18 minutes later. The aircraft, uh, I guess, was still ahead of schedule. But uh, we have some live ATC. Uh, uh, <laughs> we also have a, a an image here that uh, I don't know if um, Olivier did this himself or if this was uh, from some other source, but it shows a Singapore Airlines A380 on runway 16 uh, ready for takeoff and there's a big sticker like a bumper sticker on the uh, jet that says I break for animals all of them <laughs> and then there's a little cartoon fox I don't think it's a real fox <laughs> that's uh, ahead of the airplane a little bit down the runway just kind of you know crossing the runway ahead but. yeah if the fox had been that big I think they'd have justified <laughs> it a, a stop but I think they would I have to say normal fox is uh, is really it's not going to do the airplane much damage. I mean, it might do the fox a bit of damage. Yeah. Managed to leap uh, six feet in the air and disappear down an engine. That was sort of a possibility. 
But uh, it seems to be a slight overreaction by a traffic fiasco. Yeah, I think so. Let's uh, listen to some of these uh, clips that he sent. And it's been a while since I listened to them, so let's see what we get. Singapore 345. We observed this fox uh, quite a while ago, and then uh, shortly after issuing the takeoff clearance, it uh, decided to cross the runway and I thought it's better to stop your takeoff roll. It was a possibility that you hit it. Thank you very much. I think that that was uh, the explanation from the tower after they told them to stop the takeoff. Uh, let's see the next one here. Let's see what this one is. Singapore 345, stop takeoff. As I again stop takeoff, uh, Fox is crossing the runway. Stop takeoff, Singapore 345. Okay, so I guess I have these out of order. That should have been the first one played, and uh, that was the initial request to stop their takeoff. And then let's see what this is last that, one is. Did that Fox ask for clearance? I didn't hear it. I it could have been a different frequency. Could have been, yeah. yeah. I'm the danger. desperately trying to think of what foxy frequency it could be. <laughs> hey, Prince, this is about 345. Hello again, turning left on April 5. Singapore 345, hey, Prince, hello again. Are you ready for another try? Confirm, Singapore 345. Roger, then on the tarmac, uh, left turn on Echo, back to holding position Echo 2. Left turn Echo, holding position Echo 2, Singapore 345. Uh, can we check where was the traffic uh, that was impeding our signal? Please say again. Can we check the traffic that uh, caused us to abort the takeoff? Where was the traffic crossing? Singapore 345. Singapore 345, it was actually a fox crossing the runway. Oh, copy it. Thank you very much, Singapore 345. <laughs> so, so all this time they, they thought it was some kind of another airplane or something. Oh, so what, what was this traffic that we were stopping for? Uh, <laughs> no, it was not a traffic. It was uh, It was a fox. Interesting. Foxtra Oscar. Yes. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Olivier. Yeah, for... If it was trotting, then it definitely would be Foxtra. It was a fox it? trotting across the runway. There we go. We yeah, have our title. Was... <laughs> <A> fox trotting <laughs> My... across the runway. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you again, Olivier, for, uh, for that. Uh, Tim uh, writes, Captain, been listening to the show for a few months now and absolutely love it. As someone who travels quite a lot, 300,000 miles flown last year. Wow. Uh, I feel very at home in the skies, uh, and the podcast provides me with that same type of familiar solace when I'm on the road keeping up the, uh, keep up the amazing work. What I wanted to address stems from APG 262 when uh, you and the crew mentioned the diminished interest on behalf of passengers to thank, recognize, say goodbye to pilots on their way out of the aircraft. Personally, from my side of the cabin, I feel this is mutual on more occasions than I, I can count. I have wanted to chat with or applaud pilots and first officers alike. Actually, first officers are pilots. Uh, whether for exceptional in-route PA announcements, noteworthy landings, or, uh, or with tricky crosswinds and routing. For example, at my home airport of DCA and its famous river visual approach. And most importantly, an ever-present appreciation for passenger safety. However, more often than not, the pilots never emerge from the cockpit, and I can't have a chance to chat with them, as a flight attendant is blocking the door, etc. Why is this? Have you noticed this too? Uh, I admit I'm an AA concierge key member, so you may not be able to comment specifically on how they manage things over there, but nonetheless, would love to hear your thoughts, Tim. So now maybe uh, uh, Captain Jeff, the other Captain Jeff, can uh, 
kind of give us his thoughts on his airline and what their policy is in regard to this. But at Acme, it is actually policy, although it's not always followed, uh, sadly, uh, that we, unless there's some other reason for us not to be standing at the door saying goodbye as passengers to plane, um, such as uh, a tight connection for another flight. And if we stayed to say goodbye to everybody on this flight, now we're going to delay everybody on the next. So in that case, if that ever happens to me, and it does happen occasionally, I'll get on the PA and say, hey, look, I just wanted to thank every one of you. I wanted to thank every one of you uh, individually, but I can't do that because there's another flight that we're kind of running late for right now. So here's our thanks again. Um, You know, appreciate you flying with us and hope to see you again soon or something to that effect. Uh, but uh, sadly, at my airline, even though it's policy in the flight operations manual that we stay and say goodbye to the passengers, um, more and more uh, are not. And again, I've talked about it many times on this show that it kind of it, it makes me a little sad because it doesn't take that much effort to stay around for another five minutes or ten minutes to uh, kind of give that extra level of uh, interaction with passengers. Now. I also have to say that, uh, especially, Tim, if you're uh, a concierge key member, that probably means that you're flying in first class, business class. A lot of times, at least on my airplane, um, when we first get into the gate and we turn off the seatbelt light, uh, sometimes the jetway is up to the airplane pretty quickly. The door is open pretty quickly and people are leaving right away. And we're still doing our shutdown checklists. And uh, there are times when we have to stay up there in the cockpit and run these checklists to make sure we don't forget, you know, rush through it and forget to turn an engine off or do something that's uh, critical for safety. Uh, And we also, if we're changing airplanes, we have to, you know, kind of pack up our our stuff, our our headset and our electronic flight bags and any other items that we need to put in our flight gear bags and that kind of thing. So we don't immediately jump up and get into the doorway to say goodbye sometimes. So that's, uh, at least in my experience, when a flight attendant will be standing in the doorway saying goodbye. But that should only take a, you know, a few minutes to uh, take place. And then uh, by then, I should be able to stand up in the door and say goodbye to everybody. Um, again, this, this policy may not be the same at other airlines, but I can just, you know, only tell you what the policy is at, at my airline. Um and what do you, what do you think? I don't know what is that the policy at Acme Red, uh, Nick, or do you, uh, do you no, get any no, guidance really, at all on that? We, we we're told actually we can't leave the flight deck uh, area while there are passengers still on because uh, we've got APUs running, we've got uh, systems still winding. Uh, if there is a, a warning uh, that goes off while there are passengers still in the aircraft, someone needs to be on the flight deck to deal with that. No, I understand if you're just going to stand in the door, that's fine. But our passengers usually disembark from the two doors, which is like from the flight deck for us. So, uh, you know, that's it's that's a long way. And uh, if something were to happen on the flight deck that would need our presence, uh, then we wouldn't hear about it if we were down at the two doors saying goodbye. Okay, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I know that in our airlines jets like the 757 the uh, 767s all the wide bodies it's the same thing they usually use the two left door uh, which is um, a number of feet away from the cockpit and uh, you want to have at least somebody up there in the cockpit in case something goes wrong especially when passengers are on board so 
Uh, sounds like the policies are a little bit different at my airline. Even though the policy is to say goodbye, they still, you know, need for us to uh, be somewhere near the cockpit or at least one of us up there, just in case you know we have an APU fire or something that's uh, important, so they can take care of it. So, um, yeah. but here, the bottom line for me is whether it's policy or not. Uh, doesn't matter what airline I'd be flying for. I I would try to do my best to interact with passengers as best I could when they were leaving, if at all possible. And unfortunately, that is not something that is shared by a lot of my fellow pilots out there. So, but it's- I mean, I usually take the time uh, during a flight to wander back and uh, and you know uh, wander around the passengers for a few minutes. Obviously, not for very long because. Uh, um, you know, you don't want to be off the flight deck uh, for, for too long. But uh, I, we've got very capable first officers who are more than happy to keep an eye on things for uh, 10 minutes or so. So I'm usually more than happy to go back and uh, wander around the cabin and chat to people who uh, aren't uh, engrossed in a movie or uh, whatever. If they're sitting at the bar, you know, I might join them in a, in a gin and tonic and, uh, and have a bit of a chat. You know? I don't think you're allowed to do that. Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, I didn't mean to say that. I do apologize. <laughs> now I'm going to have to take that out of the. Uh... <laughs> yeah, edit that out. <laughs> Definitely, please. I yeah, like course, my job. <laughs> of course, of you're being facetious, and uh, he's just kidding. I'm making a small joke. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Uh, that that used to be something that was um, widely practiced uh, in the U- U.S. before 9/11, but. Since 9-11, uh, it is now a rule, at, well, I think it's an uh, FAR, that, that uh, the only time that you're allowed to leave the flight deck, unless you're on an official break on a, you know, a big, long-haul airplane, uh, but if it's the kind of airplane that I fly, uh, we're only allowed to leave the uh, flight deck if it is a physiological need. In other words, we've got to use the bathroom. Uh, and we're not allowed to go and talk to passengers and that kind of thing. In fact, that's a big... Now we could get uh, big trouble for that. So, uh, and and that's sad okay. That must me. that must be a difference between our regulations. It is. Uh, we're quite encouraged to go back and uh, you know uh, chat to the passengers. Uh, I would know, love to do tell that. them a little bit about. You know, the whole time that I wanted to be an airline pilot, I, I remember back in the days when I'd see the captain walk out and just you know chat with the uh, passengers. I'm thinking I can't wait until I get to do that someday. And I hope, or at least I hope to get the chance to do that. And now I can't because uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's frustrating. Cool. Isn't it? Yeah. So the only time I really have uh, to interact with passengers is during boarding. But a lot of times during boarding, we don't have a lot of times, you know, the kind of flying that I do, a lot of time to do all the cockpit pre flight items, the exterior pre flight, setting up your electronic flight bag, you know, getting the uh, flight plan in the uh, flight management system computer and all that kind of stuff and by that time most everybody is already boarded so uh, it's not it's kind of unusual that i have a chance to say hello to people as they're boarding the airplane but uh, we do everything we can or i do everything i can to say goodbye once we have arrived so that is it's a nice touch yeah so thank you tim for your thoughts and uh yeah unfortunately again um i think uh, a lot of a lot of the pilots at my airline uh, with whom I fly, and I can't talk to uh, any other airline out there, but uh, I'm seeing this uh, is a trend that I've noticed over the last several years where 
guys are just uh, not really interested in having anything to do with uh, passenger interaction at all. And yeah, uh, so. uh, that's, that's sad. You know, and I, I, you know, when I do my PAs, I kind of take pride in, you know, giving them information about what our route of flight is going to be, or if I see something out the window that might be, you know, again, we don't have a passenger uh, in-flight entertainment system, so I'm not interrupting a movie every time I make a PA. And I don't do it that much, but I, I go through in my initial PA when we uh, get to cruise level uh, and telling them, you know, where we are going to be flying, what major landmarks and cities we're going to be flying by. And I can't tell you how many times I've had passengers get off the airplane and say, thank you very much for letting us know where we are, where we're going, where we're going to fly. We don't hear that anymore. And I always say, well, you know, you're welcome. I enjoy doing that. I'm kind of old school. Uh, because I remember, you know, years ago, that's what, you know, pilots always did. And nowadays, it's just like you don't hear anything from us except, you know, flight attendants prepare the cabin for takeoff. And that's about it. So, oh, anyway. Um, by the way, I think it's very brave of Tim to mention that uh, he's a concierge key member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I was quite impressed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's probably found at the bar of uh, acme red <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes exactly right yeah now that that's uh jeff uh captain jeff is also in alcoholics anonymous i i gather is that right not this captain jeff the other no, captain no, jeff. the other captain yes the uh, recently promoted first officer jeff yes now captain of uh alcoholics anonymous yeah there you go yeah we don't we, we really don't want to talk about that much Ah, <laughs> uh, let's see. I, I guess I should probably play. I, I'm using a new soundboard now, so let me find it here. I think I've, I just hit R. Beautiful. <laughs> a little badly Great. timed on my part, but better late than never, I say. Absolutely. Um, let's see. Going on to uh, the next one. We uh, have this from Miss Liz Piper in Toronto. Um, she shared this uh, story from the BBC.com. Uh, the plane so good it's still in production after 60 years. In 1930, the C-130? <laughs> no, you'd think so, but no, it's a little bit smaller <laughs> yeah. airplane, and it's not the Mad Dog. Uh, let's see. In 1956, Cessna started building the 172 training plane, and more than 60 years on, it's still in production. Why has it been so popular? And it can seat four people in a squeeze and weighs a little under 800 kilograms without fuel or passengers, has a maximum speed of 140 miles per hour, though you could push this up to 185 in a pin. Really? I didn't know a 172 could go that fast. Uh, in a vertical dive. Um, I guess I you're going straight down with the full paddle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right before the wings rip off. Um, yeah. But the manufacturer would rather you didn't. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> and <laughs> on a tank full of fuel, you could travel 800 miles or 1,290 kilometers, the equivalent of going from Berlin to Belfast or New York to Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> You might think that this was a high-performance car with a little more than average legroom, but it's a plane, the Cessna 172. So uh, anyway, the, uh, the story goes on to talk about the, uh, this venerable uh, airplane uh, from Cessna, and you can read more about it by clicking on the link that we'll put in the show notes. So thank you, Liz, for sharing that with us. Did you ever fly one of those, Jeff? 
Yes, I have. Absolutely. Um, I have a few hours in the logbook in the 172. It's a nice airplane. How about you? Yeah, I don't think I ever went solo in it, but uh, I certainly uh, flew it when I was in my early days working for a flying school uh, as their chief bottle washer and airplane scrubber, toilet cleaner, uh, odd job man. Oh, yeah, nice. we used to, they used to have a few 172s and so I used to get a few uh, the odd trip. Uh, it was always nice that I thought the 150 had a bit of elbow room. Yeah, the 150 is tight. The 150 and 152. The 172, uh, feel you feel like you have a little bit more shoulder to shoulder kind of room, and uh, you can, you know, put a couple extra people in there or some extra baggage and that kind of thing. So uh, yeah, like and some much. of them were really nicely kitted out. They had some yeah. great uh, instrumentation in there. Yep. Let's see. Uh, somebody in the chat, Neil Braden, said he's never gotten a 172 greater than 120 knots. Um, yeah, I'm thinking that that figure of 185 seems <laughs> almost unattainable. But uh, anyway, um, so yeah, what a great airplane that that. Uh, in fact, um, when I went through, uh, we called it Fishpot flight flight screening program officer trainee uh, right before I started officer trainee school uh, because I didn't have a private license uh, when I was. Uh, inducted into the Air Force. They put us through this program, about a three to four week program, where we went out and flew the Air Force T-41, I think it was a T-41, uh, Muscadero, which of course was a 172. <laughs> That's a fancy name. Yeah. painted What, in, what the uh, hell is a Muscadero? I have no idea. I think I have that right. <laughs> I think it was something like a Muscadero um, out at Hondo uh, Air Base in uh, Texas. And uh, that, and I soloed, yeah, that was the first airplane I soloed in, was the, uh, was the 172. So I have a Thanks. special place in my heart for the, uh, for the airplane. Um, this was an interesting thing. Ross in England sent us this uh, from the Aviation Herald. He says, uh, wake turbulence rolled this biz jet multiple times. Hello? <laughs> I'm still here. What was that? Is that are you hearing that ding? I thought I'd Oh, yeah. It off, it's but... as clear as a bell, literally. Well, I, <laughs> I, I have actually, if, it must be coming from me. I don't know where it's coming from, but uh, I do apologize. I've got three devices it could be coming from. It's and, coming uh, from one of them for sure. It was like, <laughs> yeah. ding. Yeah. I'm, I'm uh, awfully sure it's not me. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't anyway. know how to stop it. I do apologize. Anyway, yeah, no it's stressful. She, she messaged us. It just adds to the ambiance of the airline pilot guy show. <laughs> We've had a lot so of that on the show. Now. <laughs> we, could, we, had, <laughs> we had fan noise in the background with Dana in uh, Daytona Beach. Um, yeah. And, I... uh, anyway, so um, getting back to Ross, uh, he says that. Uh, the, Anyway, let me read the uh, the article from the Aviation Herald. This uh, accident. Uh, let's see, an Emirates Airbus A380-800, most likely registration A6EUL, uh, performing flight 412 from Dubai to Sydney, Australia, was en route at flight level 350, about 630 nautical miles southeast of Muscat, Oman, and about 820 nautical miles northwest of Malé in the Maldives. At about 8.40 Zulu, when a business jet passed underneath in the opposite direction, 
The A380 continued the flight to Sydney without any apparent incident and landed safely. Uh, the business jet involved in this, a MHS Aviation out of Munich Canadair Challenger 604, was performing flight 604 from Malé in the Maldives to, or Mal, is it Maldives or Maldives? Maldives, I think. Maldives, Maldives. I say it, but I'm, I'm no expert. Okay, um, I think that's the way I've heard it. To Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates, with nine people on board. Uh, they were en route over the Arabian Sea when an Airbus A380-800 was observed by the crew passing 1,000 feet above. Okay. <laughs> That's uh, not a lot of vertical separation between a small biz jet and a huge super jumbo. Anyway, but I guess it's legal. After passing underneath the A380, the crew lost control of the aircraft as a result of wake turbulence from the A380 and was able to regain control of the aircraft only after losing about 10,000 feet. The airframe experienced very high G-loads during the upset. A number of occupants received injuries. After the crew managed to stabilize the aircraft, the crew decided to, to divert to Muscat, Oman, entering uh, Omani airspace um, at 14.10 local time, declaring an emergency and reporting injuries on board and continued for a landing at, in Muscat um, at 15.14 local time without further incident. A number of occupants were taken to a hospital. One occupant was reported with serious injuries. The aircraft received damage beyond repair and was written off. Now that's Good Lord. No small business jet. Um, a Canadair Challenger 604 is essentially the business version of uh, the regional jet, the RJ, Canadair regional jet, or what we call the RJ200, I believe. So uh, that's, uh, or perhaps even the RJ700, uh, I'm not sure exactly uh, this particular version, how big it was. But it's a, it's a substantially sized business jet. And, of course... The Airbus A380 is a substantially sized uh, airliner, and it just kind of goes to show you that these big airplanes put out huge amounts of wake. I'm wondering why, you know, um, they didn't get rerouted or whatever, or or given more altitude um, separation. But uh, maybe you can speak to that, uh, Nick. I mean, is that is that standard that thousand foot uh, separation even over like uh, the Indian Ocean? Yeah, if you're in RPSM airspace uh, and there's a huge portion of the world is now uh, allocated to RBSM reduced vertical separation minima airspace, a thousand feet is the standard uh, height separation. So. Uh, uh, the only country in the world where you're going to necessarily know that uh, an aircraft's weight category is heavy or super heavy is uh, probably over the states uh, because we append uh, that categorization uh, to more or less every call. Um, but that doesn't happen uh, well. And um, uh, Arabian airspace, uh, it doesn't happen that I, that I can recall. So uh, the chances are that Nessie saw him and visually identified him that his jet wouldn't have known it was a super heavy that uh, was going uh, over the top of him. And, of course, uh, because they're not, like, stabilized um, behind him and sitting in his wake and being 
thrown around and just offsetting his flight path a little to get out of it because it's crossing. Um, it's very hard to predict exactly where that wake's going to be. Sometimes if there's a contrail, you can physically see it, in which case it's not hard to avoid. But um, uh, it's very hard to know exactly where that wake will come down and penetrate your height, even if it does come down and it doesn't necessarily go. It's, it's, wake turbulence is supposed to drop about 500 feet behind, below an aircraft, and then stabilize there until it dissipates. So uh, it's not actually supposed to go down uh, more than that. So uh, exactly what happened, perhaps there was an additional atmospheric in a jet stream or something, a bit of wave that um, helped move this turbulence. Um, yeah, I think I um, it's, it's, it's a beat. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what went on here. I'd, um, as you say, uh, because you know, if you're in the water and a boat is putting out a wake, you can see that because you can see the water, you can see the waves and the wake that a boat is leaving. But unfortunately, most of the time in the atmosphere, you can't see it. And unless, as you mentioned, uh, the uh, airplane is putting out a chemical trail, I mean, a um, contrail. <laughs> and yeah. uh, so, and even then, that's not always a reliable uh, signal of uh, where the wake is. And uh, I've, I've read several instances of airplanes flying. Jeff's gone. Oh, no. I'm here. I'm back. Hello, Steph. <laughs> Can you guys see me again? Yes. Yes. I see two of you now. Yeah. I'm over here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're the handsome one. The other one I'm not so sure about. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure which one's more handsome. I think the uh, the avatar. <laughs> um, so, as usual, internet connection problems rule the day on our little APG show. So, um, okay. So where do I pick up? I think I was talking, as soon as I, we finish up this, then I'll bring in stuff. Um, so I, I read somewhere, I don't know if it was associated with this, uh, particular incident or something else that was very similar to it, where uh, a jet was flying below another, uh, heavy airplane and they said it was about two minutes after they had passed that they experienced a very, very heavy wake. So it's just, it's unpredictable. It's, you can't really see it. it, it it's just, um, I'm not sure if he had seen this A380 coming at them head on a thousand feet above. If they had, you know, if they had made a little bit of a, uh, a deviation from their course, you know, like upwind, if that had made that, if that would have made a difference, possibly, I don't know. I'll bet that this pilot, if he ever is encounters this particular, uh, kind of thing again, he will be thinking about, um, you know, offsetting a little bit to potentially avoid the turbulence, but, uh, that's a big deal. And these, uh, these big super jumbos throw out a huge amount of turbulence. Absolutely. I mean, we offset the standard across the Atlantic it, done in a random manner uh, or sort of pseudo-random, uh, uh, and we will offset one uh, or two miles uh, so you don't go into the wake of someone ahead. Uh, equally, um, you know, you won't give your wake to someone behind, perhaps. But uh, it's not practiced regularly elsewhere in the world. And uh, I do see people drilling around, you know, right underneath or 
on top of each other without any concern. China's the only other country where they seem to practice it regularly. And their air traffic will specifically uh, tell uh, aircraft to fly two miles or three miles right of track to you know stagger the, the wake turbulence. So I, I personally think that's not a bad idea for air traffic to uh, instigate it. If they see uh, aircraft of different wake categories coming towards each other, they'd be quite clever. Yeah, I think that everybody should do that, actually. Oh, hey, look at this. Doctor? I think we have doctor. a doctor. 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 And commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot has has joined us. It's I made it. Dr. Steph. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very glad to be back with you guys. And sorry I was so tardy this afternoon. No did not you plan on being that late um you know but of course i'm like oh no i just have one quick thing to do after work i'll be right home i'll be you know 45 minutes maybe an hour late at the most uh-huh. yeah of course because yeah. i no problem said that this is kind of a but... just a last minute thing you know it, it usually Bad. is and uh so. we're just happy that you could join us at all for the show we had dana on earlier he was in uh, daytona beach having a bunch oh, of nice. fun down there and uh he he uh his battery on his phone uh, was was depleting rapidly, and uh, actually, yeah, I think using it a fire Google Hangouts on the phone <laughs> that happens pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, it, it 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 robs the juice pretty darn quickly. So, uh, so Steph, yeah. what what have you been up to lately? Um, gosh, what have I been doing this week? Not much. Um, I'm, I'm missing the warm weather from last week. I'm sure you guys talked about that at the the beginning of the show, but um, nope, not out flying or anything since the last time I talked to you guys. Last time was when I was out and about and met up with uh, dispatcher Mike and Miami Hick. So nothing new on the, the flying front. I think I'm probably going to go out. Uh, gosh, probably not next week either, but the week after that again. Um, so yeah, just the usual here. Um, work and life and getting back into more running and working out and yeah. And poking people with sharp objects. Usually. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's my job. So hopefully I'm, I'm still doing that. That's, that's what the Maasai warrior says. What's that? <laughs> Making people with sharp objects. That's what the Maasai warrior said. Oh, I'm not familiar with that. Yeah. Well, I'm just trying to think of someone with, or the Zulu Sorry. might have said it too. Well, that was a very pointed commentary from Captain Nick. <laughs> <laughs> boom, boom. I'm sure someone out there understood the reference. It wasn't done for myself, but... Um... There we go. Okay, uh, so we were just in the middle. We've already covered the news stuff, and uh, we're now in Great. the uh, feedback portion of the show. And uh, let's see, let's continue. Looks on. like I joined just in time, maybe too. Yeah, in the uh, feedback folder. I believe you did. So this next piece of feedback is um, audio feedback, and it's for uh, from Nick Herring, and he says I have a little bit of voice feedback here for. Dr. Steph. So let's see what uh, Nick Herring has to say. Well, hello, Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, First Officer Dana, and Dr. Steph. How is everyone doing today? Fine. Okay, fantastic. This question is for Dr. Steph. Dr. Steph, you being involved in the medical field already and being a pilot yourself, have you ever considered becoming an AME as well? Uh, I'm not sure if you've talked about it in the past on uh, past podcasts, but um, I'd love to know your response. Anyway, keep up the great work, guys, on an amazing podcast, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. 
Good question, Nick. Um, thought about it, yes. Pursued it, no. Um, mostly because of time constraints with what I currently do in my current role at my current job. Um, I stay pretty busy, or at least as busy as I, I would like to be. Um, you know, and, and the type of group and practice I'm in, we're not really set up to do uh, we, we do mostly spine evaluations, neck pain, back pain, that type of stuff. Some of our docs are surgical, some of us are not, um, but we all kind of work together to um, kind of help out all of our patients there. So, um, it, you know, it certainly would be interesting and it might be something that I pursue down the road, um, maybe later in my career when I um, either want to cut back on time or hours, or if I get tired and bored of what I'm doing now and need a, a change, um, it would be, I think, really fulfilling, rewarding. Um, and like I said, the biggest reason why I don't do it now, our office really isn't set up for it. We don't have any of the necessary equipment to do eye exams, um, hearing tests, to do EKGs, to do all kinds of stuff that might be required for a uh, aviation medical exam. Um, most of the time, I don't even have a stethoscope with me, believe it or not. So, um, What? But uh, yeah, no. Well, how do people know you're a doctor? Uh, I carry around a reflex hammer. All oh, right. And if, if they try and call you a nurse, you hit them over the head with it. That's right. That's right. No. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think it would be a good combination of, obviously, two of very strong interests of mine, passions of mine. Um, just as of right now, not something that I really have the time or effort or energy to, to throw myself into. So. A good question. Well, you're a doctor, Steph. So, um, are, are you thinking about buying a um, V-tailed Bonanza? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> That's an old joke, isn't there? I, I know. Yes, there there is a joke in there about doctors and bonanzas. Um, what, I've what flown a V-tailed uh, Bonanza. A V-tailed doctor killer or something. Doctor like killer. That? Yeah. Uh, what's yeah. the nickname of that airplane? That's that's what it is. Yeah, because um, doctors are the only ones that can afford the uh, V-tailed Bonanza, right? Yeah, and then they go out and do. Silly things because they think they're, you know, they have a lot of confidence, let's say, in, in their abilities. And, That's a good um, way to put it. <laughs> yes. And and maybe they shouldn't be so overly confident sometimes. But no, no, um, I'm really enjoying the little Cirrus that I've been renting recently. So That seems like I, a very sweet airplane. Oh, it's, it's such a nice airplane and I can't afford it at all. I mean, to, I can afford to rent it, but I will not be purchasing one anytime soon. They're quite pricey. Maybe you could get with a group of, uh, do, like, do a fractional ownership. Yeah, kind of I mean, thing. that would be, and and there's ways to do that, and there's actually opportunities here to do that as well. He's here to do that as well. Um, I think uh, I'd have to know for certain that I was actually going to uh, be able to use that time that I would be committing to, because, um, or at least be able to use it enough to justify the cost of it. So, you know, right now, like I was just saying, you know, with my job the way it is, I stay pretty pretty busy, um, do a lot of other things to travel and family stuff outside of work and aviation podcasting and all of that. So, um, but yeah, good question. All right. Well, if she decides to go down that road, I'm sure she'll be the first to let us know. Yes, absolutely. As far as becoming an I'm be the first to book my medical. <laughs> I don't, I think, I, I think I'm in the wrong that. country to be, uh, I've, I've heard aviation medical examiners, um, do fairly well over in the UK uh, for the exams, but maybe the exams are more involved or lengthy time-wise. I'm not. I'm not sure. No, I don't think so, Steph. I don't think they're any longer. But uh, pardon me. Yes, they. I think they do get paid quite well. Yes, I, that is what I've heard. So, 
Um, and here you can actually, as far as I know, you can set your own fee for it, but um, depending on the area you're in, there may be a lot of aviation medical examiners, so you need to have competitive pricing for it. So it tends to be fairly reasonably priced to get your medical done. Ooh. Yeah, I've, I've heard um, $150, $200 unless you need an EKG. And that, yeah, and, I mean, you know, I, yeah, $100 to 150 that's yeah. pretty average. Pretty, actually, pretty cheap in my mind. But. Fairly cheap, especially for some of the stuff that, you know, your aviation medical examiner should be doing for you. Yeah, should be. And the, the amount, well, and the amount of paperwork that they really have to review and go through because, you know, we fill out most of that, but it's on them to look through it and make sure they've signed off on it too. So it's, it takes time to do that paperwork. Excellent. Well, I'm lucky my company pick up uh, all the cost of my uh, annual medicals, which uh, because I'm getting uh, on a bit and now I have to do uh, lots of additional tests that I wouldn't do if I was a younger man. Um, I submitted a bill of £500 to the company the other day, and that wasn't for the actual medical. That was just for all the ancillary checks I had to have done. So uh, I'm very glad that uh, the company's picking up that bill. Yeah, that's a lot more expensive than it is here. I don't know if anyone who's ever paid that equivalent for the medical, you know, unless they're medical has been uh, revoked, suspended, and they have to do a lot of other additional testing, but yeah, yeah, not for routine. All right. Well, uh, thanks, Nick, for uh, sending in your audio feedback. Great questions. Uh, Ken sent this in. He said, uh, thanks for the marvelous podcast. Been a while since I sent you anything. And he said, I found this in a Facebook post just now. Uh, given when it was done, it may qualify as a possibility for plain tales. I don't know. Did you, did you take a look at this, uh, Nick, at all? Uh, yes, I did. Uh, well, I, I certainly have actually replied to uh, Ken's email saying that uh, uh, he needs to listen a little <laughs> more diligently <laughs> to plain tales because uh, part of the uh, the plain tale I did uh, probably three or four episodes ago, The Son of Zeus, was all about the yes. C-130, and uh, I the whole point of doing it was because someone had written in saying that uh, he'd heard a C-130 had landed on a carrier. And um, That's right. was it true? And uh, so that, that kicked me off. And just that event wasn't quite enough to make a whole plain tale. So I sort of covered the, the life uh, of the C-130 uh, and then did that bit in the middle of it. But uh, if he's interested, then he can just go back and find that. Yeah, but, so one, uh, and, just a couple episodes ago, I believe. Um, oh, that's right. The son of Azusa. I'm thinking Ken is probably maybe just an episode episode or two behind on uh, what? listening as most yeah. folks. Uh, and we've got I, I know everyone devotes three hours a week to listening to us. Uh, <laughs> How could that on, possibly uh, be? We have such a nice short show. <laughs> I know. Only easily digestible. Not every once in a while. And, right. you know. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, anyway, so he, he sent a link to this. Uh, I did watch the uh, video link that he sent with it and uh, pretty impressive to see the C-130 landing on the uh, deck of the um, aircraft carrier back in 1960-something. Um, uh, yeah, I, I love the way the U.S. Navy borrowed a Marine C-130 to do that. So if they'd written it off, <laughs> they well, would have just yeah. said, oh, sorry, guys, we broke your plane. <laughs> Not like they... They, uh, you know, used one of their own. Not that the Navy had any. Well, they may have done. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure the Navy had any of their own 130s. Uh, yeah, probably but, just uh, Marine Corps. Just seemed a bit cheeky. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so uh, 
won't tell anyone. It's fine. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'll put, I'll put uh, a link to this in the show notes if anybody is interested in reading a little bit more about the uh, the 130 landing on the aircraft carrier. And, but I've just seen uh, thank- the related link on that piece of uh, uh, that you downloaded to the uh, show notes about the USS Forrestal, the disaster that changed the way U.S. sailors learned damage control. Isn't that the um, the Vietnam era? incident that occurred on Forrestal when a missile cooked off uh, on the deck and uh, flashed yeah, across. That's, that's what it looks like. I have the link open right now. And that's, yeah. uh, a I'm just looking at the cooked off on the deck and flashed over and hit another aircraft opposite. They were all bombing up in preparation yeah, a, for a big mission. And then there were a series of sympathetic explosions as uh, aircraft weapons uh, exploded on the deck. Aircraft fuel poured down through the deck into the compartments below. The death toll was horrendous and some incredibly yeah, great uh, feats of the firemen. Get, fire rage get, for hours killed 134 sailors, yeah, destroyed 24 aircraft, 70 million uh, in damage. I remember we, we watched this because uh, it was part of the RAS training uh, and to uh, instill us the importance of. Uh, of safe directions when you're arming up aircraft so that if a weapon does go off accidentally it it doesn't hit anything important and uh which actually happened at my base when uh, uh, a a false uh earth a bad earth caused a, a short circuit and a sidewinder um uh, disappeared off the rails of a f-111 sorry uh, a trouble one squadron f4 and uh, rattled across the airfield and ended up in the the river, <laughs> just down by the end of the airfield. So uh, yeah, and that actually that's going to make a great plane tale. I must make a note of that one. So that disaster is a story worth telling if people haven't heard of it. Yeah, looks like there's some video of it too. It was yeah, cool. the, the 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 firefighters who came out repeatedly onto the deck, knowing that their um, fellow firefighters had all just died when a series of bombs went off, yeah. to have the courage then to to go out, retrieve the hoses, and have another go, I think just shows an enormous level of bravery. Yeah, I'd like to hear more about that story. Nick, perhaps? The Old Pilot's Flame Tales In the Box Sleepy-headed and bleary-eyed, I squint at my phone as it blares a so-called twinkle alarm call. It's the wee hours and the sun is still well below the horizon as I throw some clothes on and head off across country. I slurp coffee as I weave through the country lanes, trying to get my brain in order. For the past two weeks or so, I've been preparing for the next couple of days by diligently studying aircraft systems, procedures and emergency drills. Now it's time to jump one of those regular hurdles that every airline pilot faces. In my case, twice a year. My recurrent simulator checks. Parking outside the huge simulator building, I sigh and head in to start something that I put on a par with a root canal job, or perhaps having to clean out a blocked sewer. I can, of course, have sympathy with those enthusiasts who would love to spend a few hours in a zero-flight time full-motion simulator that gives such a realistic impression of flying a real airliner. New pilots can do all their training on one, and the first time they get into a real aircraft, it will be full of passengers. 
What could be more fun than having a go at doing a commercial pilot's job? For real. Or certainly as real as technology could possibly make it. As I sign into the smart building, I can see down the long hall that houses the simulators. Seven or eight of the large white boxes stand tall on shining hydraulic jacks. They trail a multitude of umbilical cords that power the electrics and feed back to the banks of computers that copy the characteristics of an aircraft so closely that every nuance of flying can be practised. The latest generation of wraparound visual systems are near photographic in quality and every detail is displayed, from the cars winding down the roads to the rain whipping across the puddles of a drenched apron. Our examiner collects us and leads us up to a classroom, and we sit in comfort whilst being gently roasted. One of the first things we do is hand over our air transport pilot's licences. They won't be of any use to us again unless we pass the next two days' sessions. The briefing takes about 90 minutes, and we get a general idea of how today will be conducted. This routine will start with the captain as pilot flying for a flight from JFK to London Heathrow. A full start-up will be conducted in LVO conditions for a limited visibility operations departure. The emergency scenario will be followed by a manoeuvre check for the first officer to cover all the mandatory line proficiency check items. Day 2 will be a repeat with the first officer starting as pilot flying, but in Cat 1 conditions, and then we'll cover the captain's LPC items. The routine finishes with three FST, that's flight simulator training, items. Every six months, we get a suggested list of study subjects, which this time included LVO procedures, the engines, autopilot and flight director systems, stall warning and stability augmentation devices, HIFARTO, that's engine failure after takeoff, OEI ILSs, one engine inoperative instrument landing systems, two GA, go around and land, fire drills, smoke and fire, fuel dumping and incapacitation. The items are chosen so that, remembering we get simulator sessions twice a year, all the aircraft systems are covered on a three-year cycle. Once the basics are out of the way, we go on to a training brief that includes a variety of subjects, such as emergency PAs, what we should say, the situation is under control, and what we shouldn't say, oh my god, we're all going to die. We cover the list of PAs we make to the cabin crew in various emergency situations to either prepare them or stand them down. We discuss changes made to our evacuation procedures and talk through the evacuation of the Emirates 777 at Dubai last year. Some of our bad habits on the radio are mentioned and we are reminded how it should be done. Finally, we spend some time discussing the Airbus flight laws, how they work and what happens when they change, ending up with the recent changes to TCAS with version 7.1. By that time, I'm just about ready to go home, but the gleaming white box awaits like a very attractive rat trap. Over the retractable bridge we troop and inside, to be faced with a view that is very familiar. The pointy end is identical to my everyday workplace. The aircraft faces a terminal building with passengers passing the windows and workers wandering around below. 
Behind our pilot's seats, however, is the captain's seat from the Starship Enterprise. The examiner sits in this throne, surrounded by displays and controls, most of which are marked Make His Life Miserable or Make His Life Even More Miserable. The dreaded clipboard sits on the chair, with boxes to be marked for every conceivable manoeuvre. Just our cockpit inspection has the following items to be checked. Document inspection, information gathering, cockpit scan, de-ice procedures, anti-ice procedures, EFB, that's electronic flight book, FMGC, flight management guidance computer, FMS, flight management system, and navigation setup, comms setup, ECAM, or electronic centralised aircraft monitoring, and QRH, Quick Reference Handbook, Use, Resilience, Altimetry, Navigation, Accuracy Check, Contingency Planning, Interaction with Agencies, Crew Management, Time Management, and that's before we even start with the first checklist. Today's briefing has me a little concerned. Weather will be low visibility at JFK and airfields past Boston North, and the first Cat 1 airfield south will be Philly, some 135 miles away. The longest Cat 3 capable runway at JFK is 31 right at only 8,500 feet, and straight after takeoff, we will be too heavy to stop on it since it's wet. If we get a fire after takeoff that won't extinguish, we'll be faced with a very difficult decision. We could land overweight and take a burning aircraft off the end of the runway. We could divert, with the possibility that the engine fire will burn the wing off before we can get to Philly, or we could try dumping fuel to quickly reduce weight, with the chance that the burning engine might ignite the fuel as it's jettisoned, with all the inherent risks that would bring. As we prepare for departure, briefing the additional problems that low visibility gives us, my mind is working through many possible nightmare scenarios. The pushback complete, we start engines whilst we watch the tug move away. Every detail is replicated. The visibility is as low as we can accept, and taxiing is difficult on an airfield not renowned for its great signage. Now we get a runway change. We need new performance figures and a new departure, and most importantly, to remember that this runway has an emergency turn to help us remain clear of Manhattan should we get an engine failure. We take assistance from ground radar, but interpret I see you past Hotel Bravo as being past Hotel Bravo. What the examiner playing ATC meant to say was a beam Hotel Bravo, so we take a wrong turn. Not quite lost in the fog, but pretty pissed, we finally end up at the runway. I brace myself for the expected worst case and open up for takeoff. We trundle off, and as soon as I start raising the nose, the runway disappears completely in the fog. We climb out into the thick cloud and fly the departure. Nothing happens. We continue to the north, up past 20,000 feet, and nothing happens. Finally, a quiet ding, and the ECAM displays a number one FADEC fault. The digital engine controller has stopped sending data, and all the number one engine instruments show amber crosses. 
We know it's still working as the generator, hydraulic pump and bleeds show normal indications, but nothing else. I call operations over the sat phone and speak to the engineers. Yes, they say we see the same. What about the lack of monitoring, I ask? Well, you should be fine. If anything goes out of limits, it should bring up a separate warning as they run through different channels. We discuss it and elect to continue towards London, but the examiner decides he can't waste time, so forces our hand by giving the engine low oil pressure. The warning dutifully appears and we shut down number one. We can still get across the Atlantic on three engines, at least as far as Shannon, but now operation tells us to kindly get our asses back to JFK. We guess the scenario is taking a little long. Now we face a one-engine inoperative low-visibility landing at JFK, but after dumping enough fuel, we can stop OK. The weather is right on limits for a Cat 3B approach, and that's the best we can do, but as we head down the slope, another little ding advises me that one of our radio altimeters has failed. The auto land degrades to Cat 2, and the RVRs, a measure of the visibility, don't allow that, so after a very quick mini-brief, I call the go-around. We fly the missed approach, levelling at 3,000 feet, and examine our options. Unless the weather improves, we're going to have to divert. Halfway through our discussion, the examiner decides he's seen enough and calls a halt. A sim reset puts us back on the ground, ready for my compatriot in the right-hand seat to have a go. It's murky, but no longer low visibility, and he starts our second takeoff. Around 100 knots, two things happen simultaneously. An engine fails, and my first officer dies. Taking control, I bring the aircraft to a halt, and use the code to get the cabin crew to the flight deck with medical gear. I secure the engine and let both the passengers and air air traffic know what is happening. We need medical assistance, or by the look of him, an undertaker, and prepared a taxi to the nearest parking position. Another sim reset, and on this takeoff we get the loud but not entirely unexpected bang at our V1 decision speed as a critical engine fails. My capable first officer is doing the flying and he handles the swing and subsequent rotation well. He eases the limping beast off the runway, trims it out and climbs away. The failed engine catches fire, so we work together to shut it down and extinguish the flames. When we get a chance to catch breath, we decide it's best to go back to JFK, but it's never easy because as we start back, both the autopilot and auto throttles fail, so he must now hand fly the approach. He does a great job, but at the decision height we're still in cloud with no sign of the runway. He initiates a go-around and we clean up for another attempt. This time the ILS isn't available, but the weather has magically got better. We set up for an RNAV approach, and after I click my red shoes together three times, the autopilot and autothrust fix themselves. After a very nice approach to land, day one is over. Smiles all round, we tidy up the box, and after a chat go our separate ways with a plan to meet even earlier the next day. I'm in bed by eight and wake to another cold, dark morning. Today's a bit more relaxed for me as my first officer's in the hot seat first. 
His scenario starts well, but soon after we begin our climb out, we get a call from the cabin crew saying that there's smoke coming up from the floor of the passenger cabin. Shortly after, the bells start ringing, and the red master warning illuminates the avionics bay, which sits directly under the flight deck, also has smoke. We don the deadly oxygen masks, which make us look like John Hurt out of the Alien movie. Communication immediately becomes twice as hard, and the devices suck out half our brains. By now, the real smoke that the simulator churns out is becoming thick and gloopy. I start the smoke and fumes drill, which is a memory item. A good job, because I can hardly see my hand, let alone read the checklist. Isolating all the non-essential electrics, I turn off the pressurisation system, open the flow valves fully, and introduce ram air into the aircraft. We discuss the merits of dropping the passenger oxygen masks, but I'm not keen to put pure oxygen into a possible fire. Five minutes later, my first officer has the aircraft on the ground and we break hard to a stop. I immediately initiate an emergency evacuation and we pause, ready for the sim to reset again. With most of the boxes ticked, I just need an engine failure at V1, followed by my three-engine ILS to go around and an RNAV to land. The testing all done, we relax and take our headsets off. We have a good hour and a half to practice some handling. We run through some fly-by-wire flight law reversions, practicing handling the aircraft in alternate and direct law, as well as mechanical backup. We explore the margins of the flight envelope, seeing how the aircraft protects itself at both high and low speed, and then how we must protect the aircraft when those systems have failed. We both practice stall recoveries, noting that opening up four powerful engines too early can pitch the aircraft straight back into a stalled condition. In between, our examiner tries to crash us into other airliners, and we do our best to complete various complicated TCAS manoeuvres. Finally, it's off to Washington to do some circling approaches in a strong and turbulent wind. With it wound up too severe, I'm being jolted off my seat and I'm glad I strapped in tight. A few more circuits and we're done. Our regular simulator sessions are always a trial, and none of us look forward to it. But we all recognise the need to practice our skills. Our predecessors' mistakes are often written in the blood of their innocent passengers, and unless we continue to strive to learn from those mistakes, those deaths will have been in vain. There is a reason that aviation has become the safest form of travel on the planet. Everyone in the industry knows that we must continually work to maintain our safety record, no more so than the pilots, who are well aware that their human failings are often the weakest link. Another amazing job on Plain Tales. Thank you, sir. That was stressing me out just listening to it. Brings back just so, so many wonderful, <laughs> wonderful memories. Yes, I and know. In fact, it reminds me that uh, on the 1st and 2nd of April, I'll be experiencing that fun that you just did. April mm -hmm. Fool's Day. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so I'll so be the April Fool. Yeah. <laughs> I always, yeah, exactly. I always get a kind of nice feeling uh, when I finish because I think, oh, well, that was, you know, I really learned something that was good, you know. So, but you know, it's the two weeks beforehand, all the preparation, and uh, the actual drama of being in the box, really having to stretch the grey matter to get 
you know, to solve these various hassles and things that get thrown at you. I mean, our examiners get given a profile and that some blokes sat over for months to try and think of the most devious way to uh, to make us screw up. So, you know, I just go, ah! We've got seconds. <laughs> you ever want to meet those problems? You yeah. want to meet those people and strangle them? I do. I do. Exactly right. And, and yeah, that's I, when I, I retire, I'll have a hit list and I'll go around and these people will start disappearing off the planet. Exactly. <laughs> I was listening to you just to you describe everything and it was it was making me nervous just sitting here <laughs> listening to everything. Ah. Me too. So well, an interesting an interesting question was posed in the uh, chat room while this was all going on. Liz was asking have you ever heard of anybody failing their simulator ride? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it does happen. Uh, in fact, at one point, uh, I believe the um, our Civil Aviation Authority questioned the company's low failure rate uh, and said, you know, you're, you're well below the industry norm. Uh, are you giving your pilots too easy a time? Which I thought was, you know, a bit rough. But uh, so for a while, things got really hard and guys were failing left, right and centre. But things seem to have got back to a more even keel now. I mean, there is the odd failure. You don't intend to hear about it because it's not something that gets advertised. Someone fails the simulator, uh, you know, it's kind of kept private between uh, the few guys involved and he gets retrained and resets and inevitably passes or usually passes the second time. I mean, when I was doing my command sim assessment quite a few years ago now, we, we did it two first officers sitting beside each other, um, and the simulator was split. The first half was me doing my um, assessment, and then the second half was a very nice friend of mine who had already failed this once, and this was six months down the road, and he was having a second go, and he failed again. Uh, and it really is quite depressing because at that point he realized that that was his last go at getting a captaincy and he wasn't now going to be able to move to the left-hand seat. Do so, they put a, they put a limit on how many times you can do those assessments? At that, at that time they did, Steph. Uh, now I don't think that's necessarily the case, but uh, now it's, it's sort of done on a more individual basis. But uh, they eventually they do have to say to people who don't pass, well, you you know, we've given you every opportunity and you haven't shown you can, you know, do it. So yeah. now you'll just have to remain a professional first officer. Is it what work? about, so say it's not a, someone who's trying to upgrade to captain or something. If you just fail your, whether you're captain or first officer and you fail the, uh, you know, simulator portion of things, they give yeah. you multiple attempts to, or... Yeah, yeah, the, the, there is a there is a procedure time. laid down, and inevitably it involves uh, if you fail an item, an, an essential item during the simulator, what will usually happen is you will get retrained, and what that means is the instructor will say, "Well, that wasn't particularly good. Why don't we have a couple of practices?" and um, and he will then sort of uh, become a, more of an instructor and run through the procedure that was failed and get the guy a, a bit of extra advice on how to, to tackle it and then he'll say okay let's have another go and that will be his retest and if he passes it again if passes it then that's fine you just carry on regardless it's a note is made in his training 
um, gotcha. debrief, <laughs> and uh, on you go. But uh, if he doesn't pass it the second time, then uh, eventually that becomes a fail. You can't just sit in the box and keep practicing and watching the sure. guy fail. And uh, he'll then be taken aside by a more senior instructor and given specific training on that uh, area. Uh, and if he uh, works it out, works out what he was doing wrong and, and fixes it, so be it. If he doesn't, then, well, eventually you get to the point where you'd lose your license. Gotcha. Yeah, we – um, so we – Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say for, you know, in medicine, it works kind of similarly, but you don't have to keep going back every year to do, uh, you know, to do specific training to keep our licenses. We have to do a certain amount of continuing education credits. Um, and then there's tenure uh, for just specific to our specialty. We have a 10-year uh, period where we have to retake the main exam for the specialty to be board certified. But the initial go around, you take a, uh, a written test first, and then a year later, assuming you've passed that, you actually do kind of these simulated patient encounters. Not all that different from what you guys talk about, but they give you um, the Academy of uh, American, or the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, I think gives you seven years to pass that. So you basically get seven tries at it to become board certified. <laughs> but they only seven. offer the test once okay. a year. Yeah, they only offer the test once oh. a year. So oh. if you don't pass, you have to wait an entire year cycle to go back and do it again. It's not like you can go to a different location somewhere to do another test. No, yeah, no, not for our specialty. For other specialties, I think it works differently, but ours is only offered once yeah. a year at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Yikes. Well, that's quite a famous place. I've heard of that one. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard of that too. Rasgris in the um in the chat room says that at CTC training for the airlines, you can only retake written exams a couple of times, but it goes on your record. So if you have no guaranteed job at the end. The company hiring you checks out your history, and if you get to the end of the course and have no company to hire you, you're left with the 109,000-pound bill with no job. Uh, he's just talking about the rickets there. What about the actual actual physical simulator tests? Yeah, that sounds pretty, pretty rough. Yeah. Oh, congratulations goes to Al, Captain Al, in the... Uh, in the chat room, apparently he's just gone through the uh, torture and electrocution regime and uh, <laughs> has made it out alive. So, yeah. okay, well, uh, let's see. Re related to plain tales, we had another piece of feedback sent in by our friend Ray. He's uh, my neighbor to the north in Alpharetta. He said, uh, "Thanks for the awesome." Plain Tales in episode 263, which was our last episode. Wow, I thought I was the last guy on the planet that remembered Neville Shute. I really liked his writing. My dad took me to see No Highway at the cinema back in the 1950s and also Sound Barrier. Yeah, I know that was that one wasn't or isn't Shute. Anyway, returning to our muttons, here's a pic of the split from the yoke uncle test. That test didn't fail uh, at the ATF window as YP did. Now, we're, I don't think the uh, the picture – oh, yeah, here it is. That's at the bottom of the message. Uh, oh, interesting. So there's a picture of the BOAC um, airplane and the, uh, the stress fractures in the fuselage skin. Yeah, that one ran right down the line of windows, didn't it? Yes. 
Mm. Uh, he's, he said the reason for using water for the tests rather than air was not because the energy would be absorbed by the surrounding water, but because water is almost non-compressible and air is easily compressible. Thus, in the water tank test, a rupture lowers the pressure very quickly and the resulting tear causes enough water to escape so that the pressure is rapidly reduced. With a compressible fluid, such as air, the high pressure remains for a longer period and the resulting damage is far more catastrophic. He says, time to key in the Delta P sound clip. Unfortunately, I don't think I have a Delta P sound clip. I need we to just had the, the bell that we were ringing anyone, anytime oh, someone brought up. Delta P? Okay, Delta well, P. I can do that then. There Thank you. <laughs> Round two. Um, <laughs> let's see. Now i got to figure out where my note is. Okay, here it is. Um, uh, let's see. Um, the water tank test was to establish the source of the failure, not the ultimate result. So water was a good choice. In the background of the picture uh, is a Comet 1XB. Um, note the airflow deflector ahead of the escape hatch as though they might open it in flight and have some poor oik stick his head out. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's hard to <laughs> yeah, really. A little the bit opening of, uh, looks a little bit small to uh, parachute out of, though, too. So I don't think that would be... Just kidding. Yeah, and all, all I can say is don't lose your head. <laughs> uh, it's kind of hard to find detailed photos of DC-6s and Connie's, but from looking at my pick, I don't think that the Comet's windows were more square, less rounded corner. Uh, but then as opined in this, um, he has a link to a, uh, a forum, uh, the prop liners, the way God intended man to fly, didn't climb as fast nor as high a delta p i had to uh, stretch that out sorry uh let's see da, da, da. anyways captain nick great tale in jnb johannesburg i guess the international terminal yep. in 1952 1953 was i can't pronounce that what is that paul Fonte? do you know how to pronounce that um, uh, my fontaine uh i would okay call me it Miet fontaine yeah uh, your guess is as good as mine. But the runways there were not long enough for the Comets, DC-6s, and Connies on international flights to take off. So the passengers would clear customs and immigration at Palmiot. Then the aircraft would fly the 30-odd miles to Smuts and fuel up and then take off. My first flight in a big airliner was a Pan Am Connie from Palmiet to Smuts. That would have and been Ian Smuts. Uh before they renamed it uh, because uh, Jan Smuts wasn't a character that uh, was thought of well past the um, uh, the changeover of power in South Africa. Oh, so uh, Steph, go ahead and uh, say that. I don't know what the last word is. I have to look it up. Where are the... Oops, hold on. Niege. My... Uh, yeah, that. <laughs> uh, sorry. My French is out of practice. Naive. Oh, where Wait. are the naive? Hold on. Does that make sense? I can use Google too. <laughs> no, Just it's snow. Where is, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. That doesn't make sense to me though. No, it doesn't make sense either. Ray, you got to put the uh, translation in English there so we know. But it's definitely have. where, where is the, or where or are something. the, where are the, <laughs> the word he wrote is snow, but. That doesn't make sense. Okay. Well, 
Let's see, where where am I looking chat. at this fringe? Oh, he's got it. Oh, where are the beauty? He missed. Who sont les nièges de Danton? Ah. Where are the beauties which of yesterday? Means, but I don't know that. Where are the beauties of yesterday? What language okay. is that? Because that doesn't sound like. The last part of it doesn't sound like. Maybe. French. I don't know. Is it. Uh, what, what language is that? I don't know. I don't know. The last part of that is not. Does not sound like French to me. I don't know. Ray is in the chat room, so he's here to. to help. I don't know. Well, anyway, stay. Do you see that what we're talking about, Nick? It's that in nope. the end, the last, uh, the last sentence of that paragraph. It's like the. Oh, okay. Usonle ni. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Well, it does. It kind of sounds a bit like French, but I don't know. Yeah. Oh, I see. He says it's he says, kind Where of. A are the where are the snows of yesterday? Originally referring to the guy's youth, where the ladies appeared more beautiful. Uh, so it is snow. Yeah, it's just but yesterday is year. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> very good. So uh, moving on, uh, stay well. And if you're flying a KLM fly, uh, plane, keep the blue side up. <laughs> oh, very good. Oh, and, uh, by the way, trusty from the tool room is another good shoot book. So is pastoral. Even more, by the way, picks are from RAF Cosford Museum and then he genuflex. Uh, what is your address to the RAES going to be? Uh, what is your address to the Royal uh, Aeronautical Society going to be on, Mr. Captain Nick? Well, well they, uh, they haven't actually told me what they want me to talk about, but I'm assuming from the tone of the letter they sent that it's going to be about... Uh, uh, the sort of same subject I talked um, to Marcus uh, on uh, the Omega Tau uh, chat I did, which was basically um, the Cold War um, QRA in the Phantom. Oh. Oh. We're going green. No, we're not. <laughs> well, they, this, they were kind of green this at time. Or so <laughs> set, though, I'm trying to move my cursor and then it starts playing sound clips. What I, what I was trying to do was this. Nah. <laughs> Uh, rickets? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, these are these are uh, rickets with a C. Crickets. I should uh, play the. Uh, there we go. Frogs. Ah, uh, there we go. That's more like it. Anyway, uh, we digress once again. Thank you, uh, Ray, for your feedback and uh, the uh, uh, clarification there regarding the testing in the water tank and such. And uh, very interesting plain tales. If you haven't heard that one, that was uh, in the last episode where you talked about the uh, the whole lead-up to the uh, comet disaster and investigation, etc. All right. Um, I think it might be time for another piece of audio feedback. This one from our good friend, our main man, Micah. The Boeing 777. It's an amazing aircraft. Currently the longest range of any passenger jet. And although other passenger jets may hold larger payloads, not by very much. I've only flown on a 777 one time, a British Airways flight from Newark to Heathrow. The flight itself wasn't spectacular, but what a plane. I never did meet the pilots of that aircraft, but I've been fortunate enough to meet four 777 pilots who truly match the amazing nature of this terrific airplane. They don't fly all together, probably never met each other, and at least three of them probably wouldn't remember me. But the truly unfortunate thing is, I only know one of their names. Sometime in the fall of 1994, 
I was working at the flagship store of a retailer here in Maine that's best known for its boots, its catalog, and for being open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's a huge tourist attraction, and in fact, the second most popular destination in Maine after the Atlantic Ocean. Like I said, the store is open 24 hours a day, and the shift I worked was generally from 1600 to 2400. Although on Christmas Eves, it would be so crowded that I often wouldn't get out until 0500 or later. In order to complete normal daytime activities, banking, groceries, etc., I almost always scheduled myself for weekends, working Wednesday through Sunday. This meant that in order to maintain some kind of semi-regular life cycle, my sleep schedule didn't have me out of bed much before noon. Okay, so now you need to know about another one of my strange habits. I sleep with the radio on. Currently, it's an all-news station, or NPR, but it's always been talk radio, and I've been doing it since I was five years old. In fact, I can't sleep without it. Yeah, a silly behavior on my part, but nonetheless, relevant to this part of the story. One Saturday morning, I was lying in bed, with the Boston all-news station on in the background, when I heard a live report of a 777 flyover that was taking place at an air show in Massachusetts. The 777 was a new aircraft at that time, and this flyover was one of the first times it had been seen on the East Coast. Even half asleep, I was excited to hear the news, and was sorry I wasn't there to see it happen. I went back to sleep, thinking no more about it, got up a few hours later, and went to work. Work was the usual routine. The store was filled with shoppers, and the lines were long in the men's department checkout queue where I was assigned for the day. Sometime in the late afternoon, two men came to my register with a huge pile of items they were buying. I checked them out, engaged them in conversation as I'm apt to do, and noticed they were wearing shirts with the Boeing 777 logo on it. I mentioned that earlier in the day, I had the radio on and heard a 777 flyover take place at a Massachusetts air show. The men smiled and said, that was us. We talked a bit more, and apparently they'd flown out from Everett specifically for the air show and were headed back the next morning. They'd rented a car to come up to shop at this well-known store. I told them what an airplane geek I was, small case airplane geek at the time, and how I'd followed the development of the 777 since its announcement. We had a terrific conversation, said our goodbyes, and I went on to my next customer. About 10 minutes later, those pilots returned to my register. They said they could tell how much I loved airplanes and had run out to their car to grab a 777 baseball cap to bring back in and give to me. What a treat. I thanked them profusely, and after they went on their way, asked my manager if I was allowed to keep it. Needless to say, I've treasured that hat to this day and still wear it regularly. Fifteen years later, I changed jobs and was working an overnight shift at a group home for girls. This was a very challenging position, not just because it was a regular overnight shift, but because this group of young women had been in and out of the youth detention center for most of their lives. I worked three 12-hour shifts, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights, and had a required four-hour staff meeting each week beginning at 0800 on Wednesday mornings. The schedule was grueling, especially trying to change my sleep cycle around every week and make that ridiculous morning meeting. Nonetheless, it was a way I lived for about 10 years. In October of 2009, I had to travel to southern New Jersey across the river from Philadelphia for a long weekend family event. Rather than make the at least 14-hour round trip without having fully adjusted to days again, I decided to fly down to Newark Airport, where my mother would pick me up, and together we'd drive the rest of the way from there to Cherry Hill. That Wednesday morning, after the staff meeting, I drove over to the Portland International Jetport, where I boarded a Continental Q400, 
one of my favorite aircraft, and prepared for my flight to EWR. As usual, I was in an aisle seat on the port side. Seated across the aisle from me was a Continental First Officer, deadheading his way to Newark on his way to work. There were a number of flight attendants on board, also deadheading, and by the way this pilot was interacting with them, you could tell he was a fun and friendly chap. Being the talkative guy I can sometimes be, I struck up a conversation with him. He was a first officer on the 777, on his way from his home in Bangor to pick up a flight to Mumbai. It was obvious to him I was an airplane geek, still in small case then, and we talked and talked and talked. We talked about Sully and the U.S. Airways flight 1549, which was still a relatively new story. We talked about the 777 and his flight planning to Mumbai. And we talked about my experience at the controls of a Cessna 172. It turned out this pilot was also a CFI. And I told him that the few times I had the yoke in my hands of the 172, I'd experienced some vertigo. I explained that I'd never really had any training and had trouble focusing on the horizon, not knowing whether I should be looking at my instruments or outside. He told me that my problem wasn't unusual and that it often happens when given the controls from a pilot who hasn't really explained them very well. He said being that I wasn't really familiar with the controls and how they reacted, I was probably moving them inaccurately. And when I thought I was moving in one direction, I was probably moving in another, which would throw off my sense of balance and induce vertigo. He went on to say that an aircraft doesn't always respond the way your brain thinks it will, and that it can throw your senses off. He drew diagrams, gave me resources, and really helped me understand what was happening. The next thing I knew, we were deplaning at Newark. It was the fastest flight of my life. We said our goodbyes and said we'd be in touch again as we lived only two hours from one another, one at home. It turned out, though, we got so involved in our conversation and camaraderie in that 40-something minute flight that we never even exchanged names, something I still regret to this day. Who knows? Maybe he's listening now and we'll connect again. Six years later, June 2015, and it's the day before the Innovations in Flight Day at the Stephen F. Udvarhazy Center. By now, I'm a real airplane geek with capital letters, and I'm going to co-host the podcast for my very first time. We're having a get-together and planning meeting over dinner at a local steakhouse, and in walks Captain Jeff with these two young men I've never met before. One of them turns out to be Fred Sampson, but more germane to this story, the other one was Miami Rick. Now, I said young men, and to an old guy like me, they were, but also to an old guy like me, it just didn't fit that one of these young kids was given the yoke of a triple seven on a regular basis, let alone getting paid to fly it. What can I say, Rick? Your youthful look belies your amazing knowledge and abilities, let alone your good nature. Between that dinner, the podcast, some free time at the museum, and the meetup the next evening, Rick and I got to spend a bit of time together. I remember standing with him in the Udvarhazy Center at the nose of the Dash 80, the predecessor of the KC-135 and 707, the very plane that Tex Johnson once barrel rolled. I asked him, think you could barrel roll that one? He said, under the right circumstances, he might like to try. Miami Rick has an old soul. He's a pilot's pilot and knows the 777 and now the 747 like he knows the back of his hand. Damn. I tend to believe given a screwdriver and a pair of pliers, he could tear one down to three-inch parts and put it back together into flying order, given enough time anyway. Like I said earlier, I've been fortunate enough to meet a few 777 pilots, and all of them have been pretty good fellows as it turned out. I'm really happy, though, that I finally managed to get the name and contact information from the one I met most recently. The best of the bunch, I like to think. So, Miami Rick, wherever you might be, 
I've learned a lot from you over the years. Sometimes that education came on this podcast. Other times in just 140 character spurts on Twitter. Not enough of it, though, has been in person. I hope you get more time to teach in the future, as I know I'm not done learning from you yet. For the Airline Pilot Guy here in Portland, this is your main man, Micah. Thank you, Micah. Uh, as always, uh, a great uh, piece and uh, always uh, fun to listen to. And we feel the same way about that young man. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I, I, I hope he... Uh, finds his uh, microphone again and uh, <laughs> comes to rejoin us. So lovely. I love listening to Micah's voice. So uh, calming. Uh, great. Yeah. Thanks, Micah. Yes, very nice. You can tell that Where he has are that you, uh, Come back. NPR uh, kind of background. Uh, but yeah, Rick, Rick, um, I'm not, does anybody have any idea where he is now? I think he was tweeting earlier today. I think he's um, traveling again. Didn't notice from where. Yeah. 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 I'm wondering if he is uh, actually a, a spy or something. For <laughs> He's not really, you know, his, his new job isn't with Acme Giant. It's, it's classified. I'm wondering. I don't know. <laughs> Air America. <laughs> there you go. All right. Let's see. Let's move on. Um. Oh, here's here's a good one. Right, first of all, uh, we'll do another uh, not so big. Ron uh, was wondering whether any of the crew have watched episodes of the series Air Crash Investigation or similar programs. I'm interested to know if you've learned anything from their findings or ever discussed them in the cockpit. And are they in the back of your mind if you ever have had an emergency situation? Which episode sticks in your mind and gets talked? about most uh, the most do you think uh thanks apg crew and again from not so big big ron and um i you know I, i'm sure that we've discussed um those those shows or those similar shows where they go through and they uh talk about various crashes and investigations and that kind of thing and, and kind of referring them tangentially but not specifically that i can recall how about you nick uh, yeah, I, I always find that, uh, well, I watch those things, uh, I wouldn't say all the time. Uh, some of them I find just a wee bit depressing to watch um, yeah. uh, because, of course, it's a bit like watching the Sully movie. You're putting yourself on that flight deck every time you watch something like that. So sometimes it can kind of get to you a little bit. But uh, I find they're like essential homework, essential reading for any pilot to go through the past incidents that have occurred that uh, have got big lessons attached to them, uh, and some of which I put into plain tales for that very reason, that they, some of these incidents shouldn't be forgotten because uh, they they still ring true. The errors that were made still ring true right now. Um, there are a few there which um, which I really find hard to, uh, to uh, watch. And there are a few there that I find quite um, enlightening. Uh, you know, it made me, buoy me up a little bit. I always think the Sioux City, uh, was that DC-10? Uh, incident mm -hmm. uh, that that I find uh, because of the remarkable way that the captain brought together his crew, and uh, when the aircraft was so severely crippled that uh, nine times out of ten, in fact more than that, uh, everyone would have died. They managed to uh, bring the aircraft back and 
Um, albeit it wasn't exactly a textbook landing. It was, uh, they managed to save a significant number of uh, the passengers uh, by doing such a fantastic job bringing it into Sioux City. Uh, so I find that um, that's a, gr a great story, but one that uh, always uh, terrifies me is the the sort of equivalent story of the Japanese 747 that lost all its hydraulics and then spent the next 45 minutes more or less out of control going up and down as this mm -hmm. aircraft, you know, climbed and then stalled and descended and they were desperately trying to work out how to fix it and they couldn't. Eventually they all died and like, a bit like that um, oh, Alaska uh, accident. Um, yeah, U61, uh, Mad Dog. Yeah, yeah, you're better, you're better place to tell that story near LA. Um, I thought that was a tragic one. Yeah, that was uh, terrible too. Yeah, I've seen all these and as you said, it just... Uh, it's hard to watch because, you know, you, you put yourself in their shoes and mm -hmm. especially if it's a similar airplane to the one you fly um, and you just want to yell at them and go, get the thing on the ground now. <laughs> like, don't don't try to trouble, troubleshoot the jack screw. It's not going <laughs> to. Yeah. Well, like like person. you guys, you know, I've I've watched probably most of these because I'll watch literally anything about airplanes on TV. But these ones in particular are nice because generally they're very well done. They're usually unbiased and they just prevent you know present the information um you know they they dramatize it certainly but um it's generally true and accurate information about these incidents that they're they're covering so um like nick said not you know it's not formal education but it's good to at least bring your awareness to some of these incidents so if you encounter similar things in the future at least maybe you've thought about it so yeah yeah that, and that's i find it really helps Sorry, Jeff. Go, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. I was I, I was going to say uh, I find it it really helps people who have a fear of flying um, to watch these. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. Well, I'm sure <laughs> Captain Al's fear of flying course includes a whole bunch of them. Yeah. Well, he's got to watch up this business. whole series first, <laughs> and then we'll start with day one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that no, it, it helps me to uh, work through scenarios because uh, then I think, well, if that had happened on my aircraft, what would I have done? And I think right. all that sort of prepares you in the future. If something similar happens, you go, oh, I've I've thought about this, uh, you know, and I I've, I came to a conclusion, and I was going to do this. Does this suit match? Yes, it does. No, it doesn't. And you can kind of uh, you're semi prepared sometimes for you know these emergencies. And Al says, we do cover crashing, but in a nice way. <laughs> oh, yeah. Only the pleasant experiences. Yes. Yeah, I'm going to have a nice crash today. <laughs> that's oh, that's what we call landing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can't now. You never know. Okay. Uh, let's see. We have some feedback from Sean. Is there a doctor on the plane? Uh, he writes, ladies and gentlemen, is there a medical professional on board? If you are and are willing to help, please push your call button now. Ding, 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 ding. And he has about 20 of those dings. And he says, how about a flight full of 20 of them? And then he has a link to this article. And I ended up extracting the audio from this video of the uh, subject of this article. So let's, uh, let's see what we can hear here. It was our lucky day. Maggie and I were returning from a vacation, uh, flying back to Houston from Atlanta, and uh, everything was going fine until about 
30 minutes out. And I looked over at him, and I could tell something wasn't right, and then all of a sudden he just became unconscious. And I went in panic mode. I couldn't take off my seatbelt. I started yelling, I need help, I need a doctor. And within seconds, the response was unbelievable. Next thing I know, I was, somebody was putting an aspirin in my mouth saying, chew this. And I could hear people around me talking. As he said my pulse was coming up, I started to feel better. And then I opened my eyes and saw all these people looking down at me. I was able to catch Maggie's eye and try to let her I was doing good and doing better. There was somebody watching over that plane that day and I am such, I am so grateful for the crew, the doctors and all the passengers. The passengers were all reaching out. It was just unbelievable. Really restores your faith in mankind. It ended up okay, and thanks to all those people that helped us. Yeah, kind of a fortunate turn of events for this guy uh, to have a, well, I guess unfortunate that he had a a heart uh, attack or whatever it was uh, that he was going through. But uh, it was nice that he was on an airplane full of doctors and medical people. Yeah, and that happens sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I've certainly uh, flown to conferences and things where it's not only me, but a whole bunch of my colleagues and stuff. And yeah, you know. yeah I see. I remember on the Seven Eleven bombing uh, in London, uh, the the bus that was bombed uh, was right outside where there was a conference in at a building and of um, accident and emergency doctors, which was incredible because they came roaring out and immediately, you know. <laughs> we're there. They'll be the best experts you could possibly imagine were on hand. Right place at the right time, right? Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Good outcome. Good story here. So. And uh, so the last one I have here in the uh, feedback for 264 is from, and I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, G-I-L-L-E-S. I'm going to say, Geek. I'm not sure what I'm going to say. It's a French name. Uh, yeah. Baru. I actually don't know how you pronounce his name. Gilles, okay. Gilles? Gilles? Gilles. Gilles. Oh, that sounds good. Um, he says, uh, enjoy the show and thanks for having people in the bus weird. Oh, let's see. Enjoy and thanks for having people in the bus weirdly looking at me since I laugh often in my commute. <laughs> thanks to you guys. You're welcome. <laughs> I think we've all experienced that. We have our earbuds in and all of a sudden we just start bursting out in laughter. <laughs> and people kind of look at you like, is this person crazy? <laughs> This is uh, Gilles, uh from Quebec City, uh, CYQB. Uh, so, um, so the reason why he was uh, reaching out to us is that he uh, gave us a link to something called "Listen to the Cloud," and this is this is what I was trying to talk about at the beginning of the show, and I so badly butchered. Apparently, I I thought that I had this uh, already set up in. Uh, in one of these browsers, and apparently I didn't. Um, but um, this is a web page that you can go to um, on um, Live ATC. I guess it's called Listen to the dot Cloud. And for some reason, this is not playing through uh, my earbuds. But you can go through, and uh, basically, it's in the cloud. And you can it shows all these little circles and. Uh, different cities around the world. Um, one of those is Francisco, San Francisco, which they've misspelled. 
but there's um, Houston, LaGuardia, Atlanta, Montreal, Phoenix, etc. So let's see what Atlanta's doing right now. I just clicked on the button. Here. Okay, cross the seven left, hold short to the right, effectuate Dixie, about 667 heavy. Thank you, Endeavor 4082. So there's a. Basically, you can listen to all kinds of ATC feeds from various places around the world, and it's all presented in a nice uh, user-friendly um, graphical interface on the website. And again, it's listen to the dot cloud. And uh, so thank you, uh, Gilles, for... Um, Gilles. Gilles, I'm sorry. Gilles. Yeah. Well, that sounds so much better when you say it. Gilles. Mm-hmm. Jim. Jim. I don't know if it's, yeah, I don't know. I'm probably still screwing it up. I'm sorry. You can send Let's us audio see. feedback so that we yes. actually know how to pronounce your name. Let me see. It's been I a can... very long time since I've taken French, <laughs> as I've proved it. twice in this show. So. London. Well, you, you do better than I do by a long shot. That's for sure. Oh, and the, the right. word that um, Ray had used earlier is it translates to yesteryear. So that took me a um, long time to find, which is why I was not familiar with it because. I see. Not to. Okay. Al says it's use... Gilles as in Gilles Villeneuve. Now, wasn't he a South African rugby player? I don't know. Probably got that completely wrong. I don't know. Um, I was looking for London here, but uh, then I remembered that uh, you're not going to see it here because they have that rule um, there uh, in England regarding the uh, the, the publishing of the ATC feed, which is not allowed. Yeah, you can't rebroadcast, I guess. Yeah. Record or rebroadcast, I guess. Uh, racing driver. Oh, there you go. He wasn't a rugby player. Gilles Villeneuve. Yeah, the racing driver. I should have realized that. Let's see. Trying to... Uh, that's Budapest. That's some kind of cool... Ambi- Ambient music in the background, too. How about Amsterdam? The ambient music in the background almost sounds like my drone clip. I don't hear it. You don't? No. Oh, do you guys not hear this at all? Not right now. We we got a little of it when you held your mic up to your loudspeaker last time. Hang on. You're going to hear it now. about Paris? Oh, Paris is offline. Oh, I like the idea of some background music to air traffic. I think they all ought to do that. Yeah, just like you tune in and they have this kind of weird... But you just need your, uh, um, your Bose A20 with your uh, Bluetooth uh, connected you to your phone. Yeah. <laughs> That's all the music you want while you listen to ATs, while you're flying. There you go. <laughs> okay. Enough of that. All right, well, thank you. How do you say his name again? Gilles. Gilles, yes. Gilles. Thank you, Gilles, for um, setting that in. And uh, I enjoyed playing around with that uh, webpage and listening to various, uh, looks like they're all tower, uh, but I could be wrong. All right. Uh, anything else you want to you want to talk about before we end today's show? Just to reiterate, uh, that was listen to the dot cloud. The, yeah. That's how the website listen, is. Yeah, listen to the dot cloud. Yes. Um, I'll put that link in the show notes. I've, I've got a drone. 
Can you see now, what kind of drone is it? It's uh, called a um, 3DR Solo. Mm. It, it looks very fancy. 3DR? Three doctors? Yeah, probably, yep. Uh, and I'm just I'm just asking uh, the chat room which airport I ought to fly it around. JFK, Newark, or LaGuardia? I haven't decided yet. I mean, I really think you could just hit all three. You know, just make a big. Yeah, well, yeah. It's only got an 18-minute battery, so I don't know if I'm going to oh, get around. Well, that's a little limiting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they're they're on special in uh, B and H because uh, the company uh, um, went bust. Uh, so these very expensive, very capable drones are now. Uh, dirt cheap so i bought one and i'm gonna try and find someone else's one and crash into it <laughs> <laughs> i think that's the way you're supposed to fly those <laughs> really i, I was like the the in the chat room will be disappointed he says i hope it's going to be flown irresponsibly of so, course in fact I'm, yes, I'm actually gonna fly around trying to find people with laser pens and crash into them that'll be the idea there you thing, go wouldn't I, I support ah, that okay get me out and back so the next update will be Captain Nick. <laughs> <laughs> With some, some bad boys theme music, too. Yeah, yeah we're wearing, a yellow, wearing an orange jumpsuit. <laughs> Ankle chains. Bad Nick. He's drone around. I'll tell you what, it, it, weighs, it weighs a lot, this thing. Uh, it, it, I t this would go straight through a windshield if you hit it hard enough. I'm not kidding. Oh, um, great. This is, this is not one of those kind of little frangible things that, uh, you know, you think of when you have, have little toy helicopters flying around your house. This is, you know, it, it's, it's substantial. Yeah, it just looks like trouble to me. Um, I'm sure it is. Let's see. B&H, did you go all the way over to Manhattan to the B&H or did you? Yeah, uh, yeah I, I went across there for breakfast. Yeah, no, no, no. no. Oh. I was setting a 10-minute ferry ride and then a, a quick stroll oh, okay. up from the, uh, from the uh, harbor. What do they call it? The, the okay. port? The no. Uh, dock? Dock. The Hudson See, River? On the dock and the, the dock. bay. Whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, to B&H. And so I went across for breakfast at the uh, Skylight Diner. I love it. And uh, water drains. So I'm going to have fun when I get home. What a complete day. Bought a Did drone, had breakfast. Your, uh, your yeah, ride yeah, home this evening, too, that you're thrilled about, I'm sure. Oh, I'm, I can't wait, yes. but I, I, okay. I don't think I'm going anywhere because it's a Boeing. <laughs> I'm going to go to the airport dutifully, and I'm going to sit in the in the gate lounge, presumably with all the other passengers twiddling our thumbs while they try and get this thing started, and nothing's going to happen. So we'll probably all go and find an Airbus, which will fly us home, or we'll go back to the hotel. <laughs> well, I'll be waving at <laughs> you as I, go by, as I go by Newark. <laughs> today I'll, I'll i'll wave oh so thanks well can you can you stop in and give me a lift <laughs> sure <laughs> you're you're a chum thanks uh, you have you to go welcome. to atlanta yeah. unfortunately yeah. but yep you'll have the to go opposite to it's the wrong what do you mean, direction i mean he's trying to go to no just he's trying to go the other direction oh okay it's the wrong oh, well, way that's all I there'll right. be plenty of airports in atlanta, atlanta really? to take me to london so that's actually quite a good idea there we go yeah, you can ride one of those buses that uh, go yeah. to London. So anyway, I'll okay. be able to report back on the next show, Jeff, as to what I think of the bin lineup. It'll be my first trip in one. Ooh. 
Okay. Yes, let me know. Yeah, I've, I've booked know. a trip on one in September as well, so I'll be curious to okay. yeah, hear I'll you. Sure you. Be positive. I'll tell you what the bar's like. Yes, yes please. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Um, what else was I going to ask about or say? I can't think of anything now. Huh. Oh, well. There was something there that I was going to say, but I just don't recall There's what something happening in the future? Uh, Pittsburgh. Mm, uh, we talked about Pittsburgh and oh, I was going to ask you about. Uh, did you have a meetup at all last night? Oh well, uh, I was planning to when I was originally going to be out here on the day when all the snow arrived. Um, but of course, when they switched my flight to the following day, they put me on the on the Acme number one flight, uh, which didn't actually land. Well, we didn't land till like ten past eight, uh, and I've forgotten that there was a. For, for only a four-hour time difference now, because you guys have moved your clocks, yeah, and mm-hmm. we haven't. So now there's only a four-hour difference, which actually made it an hour later than I thought. Um, and uh, by the time we got to the hotel, it was going to be way too late for people, because uh, you know, I, I didn't think people would want to sort of start a meet up at ten o'clock at night. <laughs> yeah, kind of late, especially on yeah. a what? Uh, exactly. Wednesday. Yeah, but I've got uh, two JFKs or two New York flights next month, so uh, I'll, I'll try and do one on one of those instead. Excellent. Nice. Just stay tuned, and you'll hear of where we might potentially have another Nick Captain Nick meetup, or absolutely one of the rest of us. Oh, and I've got anything else uh, next month? Oh, good, good. Uh, but it's not a good uh, one. Steph. I have to, I have to go up to Manchester, uh, position to Manchester, and then it's only one night in Atlanta, so it's going to be a quick in and out. Uh, Steph? Yes. Anything from you before we sign off? No. I'm looking at my calendar right now. Nothing exciting for me coming up. Just work. I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of, I mean, I don't know. I'm sure I'll figure out some way to travel and do fun things uh, throughout the summer, but I've booked quite a lot of vacation time in September at this point. So I think if I start asking for more days off of work to travel and do fun things, um, uh, my job will not appreciate me very much. So, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> I can't imagine not appreciating you, Steph. Well, they'd like me to be at work. Let's just uh, say that. Uh, details, so details. Of them. I know. I know. Okay. Well, uh, if you want to learn more about the show, uh, if you if you're still with us and and <laughs> you really want to learn more about our show, uh, you can do so by heading over to airlinepilotguy.com. And there you'll find the uh, information about the crew members and the community and the coffee fund and uh, all that jazz. And uh, we have some apps on the uh, iOS store and the Android platform uh, via Google Play and uh, find information about that on the website and in the show notes for today's show. And social media, we always uh, kind of hand that over to Steph. Yes, somehow that's become my responsibility, but I'm happy to take that one on. (laughs) So if you would like to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter. We're all there at APG Crew. Um, Individual uh, contact information is pinned to the top of our Twitter feed there. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. All one word there. And then there's this app, another app, not our app. It's an app called Slack. It's kind of like a perpetual uh, chat room. And there's a lot of information in there about different meetups and some of the events that are planned. If you would like to join that, you can download the app to your phone or mobile device 
and contact community member Hillel. He's on Twitter at HI11E1, and he will need your uh, email address to get you set up on the Slack. And that should do it for social media. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. And um, I guess now all we have to do is just say wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and talons. Take care, Douglas. (laughs) Take care, (laughs) y'all. Bye, everybody. Good day. WAPG Airline Pilot Guy.